Quick, what year is this? But did you know that you really have two skins? The museum will be closing in 10 minutes. This is an egg. That's an atomic explosion. And this is you. Over here are the ones who'd rather talk than play. Yes, it is. Oh, right, oh, right, oh, right. Oh, right, oh, right. Matthew McConaughey running for mayor. Governor. Governor. Future governor of Texas. Oh, my God, it would be amazing. I would vote for him if I lived in Texas. I would not just because. move to Texas just to vote for him. I think you have to live there for a little while. No. Once you move to a state, you're allowed to vote. Don't you have to be a resident for like six months? To vote? Yeah. No, when we moved to Washington, we were able to, like, I'm pretty sure. March. Wait. April, May, June, July. Uh, we were there for more than six months. Well, I mean, they're not going to vote for, for, for governor until, like, next year, right? It's a good point, but pretty short notice for moving all the way to <laughs> Tejas. Eh. It'll be fun. It'll be oh, fun. you know what, though? Elijah Wood lives in Austin. Oh, well, fuck. Let's move to Austin. Yeah. I mean, let's be real. We moved to Washington with, like, three months' notice. True. And that's farther than Texas. So, uh, before we uh, get in, I just wanted to bring up something topical. Uh, this this article's from the Military Times. Uh, and it's from November 20th, so just this week. Uh, Russia has more than 92,000 troops, Russia does, amassed around Ukraine's borders mm. and is preparing for an attack by the end of January or the beginning of February, according to the head of Ukraine's Defense Intelligence Agency. So that's good. I guess. So, no. Uh, no, thing, it's bad. No, oh, it's gee. So, remember, like, God, it was a couple of months ago that that Russian troops were, like, surrounding the Ukrainian border, and Ukraine was like, yo, what the fuck are you doing? And then Russia's like, hey, hey, we're just, you know, we're just, we're just doing a drill. Yeah. It's fine. Hey, we're allowed to be on our own land. Yeah, I suppose, but you also did take Crimea, like, a little while ago. God damn it, Russia. So, my coworker is Ukrainian, and we were talking about accents and how sexy they are, and she was like, she's like, or I was like, I think every accent is sexy, and then she was like, except for Russian. And I wonder if that's why she said it. But then my coworker was like, uh, no, even Russian accents, like Russian and Ukrainian, like, they're both like, they're both like the same, they're really sexy, and I was like, don't compare the two, she's Ukrainian, she might get upset because Russia sucks. Do you have a, do you have a co-worker of every nationality that we talk about? Yeah, actually, um, I, I'm gonna have to, you know, hope and pray for a Chinese co-worker by the time we get to, to General Mao. <laughs> Which will be the, uh, series after the next one. Uh... But we are a few episodes away. Speaking of, uh, welcome back to Long Story Short, a belated podcast about niche history and dope shit and cool people that nobody really talks about. Or for that which, the whole story is not known. I am Chris, 
I do the reading and the writing because I don't have legs. Uh, you don't have legs? Nope. Oh, okay. That's a surprise to me. And my name is Leah. I am the face of this podcast. And today we are joined by the newest addition to our podcast, our little girl who is currently sleeping. So if at any point you hear cooing, crying, or fussing, that is our little girl. She's asleep between us. Yeah. But we're not waking her up because uh, she she got that good DNA that makes it go wham wham good night. We we literally moved our microphones to be like she fell asleep on the couch next to me. So we literally moved everything to the couch in the living room so I didn't have to move so that way she wouldn't wake up. <laughs> yeah, Leah's prone on the couch with a sweet little babita tucked up in a belly and i'm squat indian style in the uh center of the living room uh i think it's i think the pc a way to say oh crisscross applesauce applesauce. okay i'm crisscross applesauce (laughs) and uh welcome back i'm crisscross applesauce (laughs) (laughs) and i'm loafer I don't have legs, but my wife has has enough legs for both of us. Oh, <laughs> you're sweet. Uh, I this... got big thighs. Your boy like it like that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Romanian gymnasts, uh, this is episode 11 and uh, part 6 of Ceausescu's Downfall, our series on 20th century Romania. This episode is called A Great Upheaval. On December 21st, 1989, General Secretary of the Romanian Communist Party Nicolae Ceausescu addressed his discontented citizens in Bucharest with the same wooden baloney he always had, and it really cheesed everyone off. You can mark the origins of their rage at the raising of Romanian cities in the mid to late 70s and the great upheaval of Bucharest in the early 80s. Ceausescu, you see, had become obsessed with the idea that he was royalty. Not only had he elected himself president, quote-unquote president, in 1974, but he did so with a coronation and a bestowal of a royal scepter. In Bucharest now, he wanted to build himself a palace. But you can't just build a palace anywhere. Otherwise, you could end up with a mansion in the slums. So Ceausescu set about building an entirely new neighborhood to surround his palace. And it just so happened that the location he wanted was already occupied by Bucharest's historic Jewish district. Oh no! Which meant Ceausescu first had to erase the slate and get rid of an entire pre-existing neighborhood. And Ceausescu had no qualms doing that because they were only Jewish people. He's qualmless, especially when it comes to the Jews. He's such an asshole. I can only see his... I can only see his, like, fishy-lipped, hook-nosed face. Hey, um, hey, uh, what do you, what do you, what do you say about we, uh, we have a little Kristan knocked of our own? I'll, I'll bring the lemons. I, (laughs) you lemons. I bet he, like, just spit all over everybody. Like, his lips just caught all the moisture, and he'd be like, and he would just, Spray. Oh, like uh, the the uh, the principal on That's So Raven. Yes. Every time he said P, 
sounds it would be. And oh, of course. Of course he's always saying sentences full of P sounds. And everyone's like... I just gave this pop screen a run for its money. The pop screen? Yeah, making all my plosives. Plosives? Anyway, I'm just making it tough for the sound guy later. I'm the sound guy later. 40,000 people were evicted overnight, relocated to new homes. The aforementioned Kushichebi concrete blockhouses uh, on the outskirts of the city. Five square miles of central Bucharest was raised, clearly, completely, down to the dirt. And the vast expanse of crumbled constructs, rubble piles, and barren fields were sarcastically referred to as Chausima a portmanteau of Ceausescu and Hiroshima. Oh my god. Wait, that was like a legitimate name that they used? Yep, because the demolitions had made Bucharest appear as if a nuclear bomb had exploded overhead. That's that's very distasteful. True, but could you imagine? You live in a city. You go go out to the countryside to visit, (laughs) you you know, your cousin for a month, and you come back, and it is flat it is a wasteland (laughs) where is is, yeah where's my house where's the roads where's everything there is literally nothing the city of bucharest has this big hole in it that's like if you went on like sim city and you just deleted a huge section of heavily developed area so you could put in like a big golden statue of a thumb or something i don't know then you call in aliens and a meteor shower and a giant robot Tyrannosaurus Rex. Could you do that in SimCity? Yeah. I could, I've only played The Sims and never played SimCity. We played a long time ago, so... I imagine they still have those aspects in whatever SimCity they've released recently. I feel like it hasn't... I feel like SimCity 4 is as far as they got. The best part was you make a road, you put buildings on it, and you call in a bunch of tornadoes. And then you re- re- redo it. That's, that's SimCity. It's like playing Roller Coaster Tycoon and not finishing the roller coasters and then sending people on it. I think it's different because when I play Roller Coaster Tycoon, I want to make elaborate, expansive, beautiful, magnificent theme parks. Yeah, no, I make death traps. And that's yeah, why we're married. Would you uh, make a big mountain with like a hole in the middle full of water? And then you'd pick up the people who give you bad reviews, and you'd drop them in, and then they'd just swim around in the middle of the park, like, unable to get out, just screaming, Help me! I'm tired! I was gonna say, don't they die? They die eventually. Yeah, but I think that... I don't recall if they die-die. Yeah, I never did that, but now I'm gonna. Yeah, let's... Let's just download Rollercoaster Tycoon 3 Platinum Edition, like, real quick. I I have Rollercoaster Tycoon on my laptop. The first one? The first one. Nerd? Actually, no, I think it's Rollercoaster Tycoon 2. Dude, you got those, uh, twisty corkscrew... Cork, corkscrew follies? Corkscrew follies? Um... Hedge mazes. What up? Cotton yeah, candy. I was really... <laughs> what up, cotton candy? I got, like, honestly, I'm wicked bad at, like, decorating it, so... But anyway, Chichescu. Oh, Chichescu. yeah. Oh, that, wasn't that a thing, like, Ceausescu? <laughs> uh, but anyway, about uh, Real Coaster Tycoon 3 Platinum. Did you know it was <laughs> no. uh, originally the <laughs> first game t- was programmed by Chris Sawyer on assembly by himself? Assembly? 
is like a, the, a bare bones code used to tell heavy machinery to make bleep bloop. Oh, interesting. Right, bit, so bit, Ceausescu. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. It's not interesting. No, it's I very interesting. It's, oh, topic. oh, okay, okay, topic okay. At hand. Okay. In order to minimize the costs of this massive construction project, 15,000 sold... I do want to hear about that later. Continue. The assembly? Yeah. Or his but programming it? His programming. Yeah, I know, I... I the guy was a wizard. He did that for the next one, too. That's insane. He made it himself. The only thing he outsourced for was the music. Damn. Literally everything else he made on his, his, his own. Yeah, good for him. Uh, in order to minimize the cost of this massive construction project, 15,000 soldiers were reappropriated as basically forced labor, working in three shifts of 5,000 each, and a further 70-something thousand quote-unquote volunteers were gathered from the surrounding area and put to task. It's estimated that 3,000 of them died throughout the decade-long project, which cost taxpayers roughly $1.75 billion, which is $3.5 in today's dollars. Wait, how much was it before? Ah, uh, yeah, so this was an actual 70s money, $1.75 billion. And now it's three point... In today's money, it's $3.5 billion. Huh, wow, Jesus. Uh, the Romanian economy at the time uh, didn't, didn't like, have $1.75 billion, but we'll get to that later. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Hey, Leah, look at me. <laughs> We're gonna we'll, get to it. We'll, 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 we'll get to it. We'll get to it. The principal corridor of this civic center, originally to be called the Boulevard of the Victory of Socialism. A.K.A. the Boulevard of Broken Dreams. That's where Oh, that's from. where they got it They love from. Romanian history. They, you know, wake me up. Wake me up when September, September ends. ends. Wake me up inside. I can't wake up. That's the wrong Save thing. me. That's Save me from essence. this nothing I have become. Leah. Save me from this. Wait. Save me, save me from this. Night. Yeah, you're right. Okay. I went to also then sing Holiday by Green Day, but I could only think of the lyrics for Holiday in my head off Smash Mouth's third album. I got a job, I got a problem, because I eat too much, and I can afford to save it up for the cruise to the camera. Nobody, nobody knows what song that is. So I can keep on dreaming. I, I feel bad making fun of Smash Mouth now that you told me that his child died, and that's when he got out became an alcoholic. Yeah. Scott H. something. Can't remember everything. But yeah. yes, very sad. Uh, my first... Well, my second concert but my first one in college you told this story on this podcast before no yeah the smash mouth one yeah really yeah i'm pretty sure i don't think so i'm i'm very i'm pretty sure because we talk about smash mouth quite often i feel like you did smash mouth is a seth rogan of hollywood <laughs> i love seth rogan yeah, yeah seth rogan it's is it's, seth it's rogan not seth rogan it's it's the Danny McBride of Hollywood. It's the um who's that kid from the Partridge Family? Danny Bonaduce. <laughs> Danny Bonaducci. Oh, Danny you're Bonaducci. right. It's the Danny Bonaducci. Damn it. So there I am. Freshman 
orientation, Smash Mouth comes to OSU to put on a concert. You know who's going to play after them? Boys to Men. But only three of them. Just stick with the story. Okay. <laughs> I'm listening. I'm bobbing my head. I got these people I barely know around me pretending we're friends because I haven't made any real friends yet. I'm saying like, yo, I like Smash Mouth. And they're like, yeah, I like All Star. And I'm like, uh, they have a larger discography, but whatever. It's fine. About halfway through, uh, this guy, these guys near the front keep yelling, All Star! All Star! And the lead singer, he's, he's you know, got a per- perpetually full red solo cup of beer he's like is my fucking band i'll sing all-star when i want to (laughs) honestly i don't remember if they played it (gasps) seriously but uh uh near the end uh he invited uh some girls remember we're all freshmen he invited some girls up onto the stage and they're both just dancing and then he like by themselves and then he turns to one and they just start making out I would be so, like, if he, if I was ever on stage with him and he just started to, like, make it out, I'd be like, ah, no, sorry, no. Poor thing. Could you imagine our little rosy baby? She she grows up. She's 18. She goes off to college. Third day, third day there, she's, she's at a, uh, a concert for a band that you loved. And she gets sexually well, like assaulted a, by a, the lead singer. A, a Breaking Benjamin. No. She's listening to the Breaking Benjamin. Breaking Benjamin. And then she gets invited upstage, and the lead singer's just like, "Ooh, hey, I'm making out with you." Mm. How? What would that make you feel? I'm very disgusted. Chantescu. Yeah. Okay. Um. So the principal quarter of the Civic Center, originally to be called the Boulevard of the Victory of Socialism, was modeled after the Champs Elysees. Elise, Elise Avenue in Paris. I actually, you know, you, as soon as you said the first part of it, I know what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Glad you know. Uh, over a mile long and 230 feet wide, known for its equidistant flowering trees and its theaters, cafes, and luxury shops. Like you said, one of the most recognizable avenues in the world. Yeah, why do, why do, uh... Why do trees line the streets of Paris? Why do trees line the streets of Paris? Because they like trees. Okay, uh, the punchline is because the Germans like to march in the shade. That is the punchline, but I didn't (laughs) want to insult any of our French listeners. We have no French listeners. (laughs) Maybe Bethany's French, I don't know. She's, I think she's French-Canadian. Oh, well then I Her last name is French-Canadian. I don't want to insult Bethany. But I, I pretend that she has a different last name, and it's Punjabi Schwartz. Does she know that? Yeah. Do you call her that? Yeah. Oh. That's like, Lisa, I always pretend her middle name is Marie, but it's not. So I always go, Lisa Marie! Like, is... Lisa, Lisa... No, but... Who's Lisa Marie? There is no Lisa Marie. I just make it her middle name. Oh. Because I gave her middle name to yell at her. Oh. Yeah, because I'm a good friend. So I make up names to yell at my friends. Am I ever going to finish this paragraph? You are not. Continue. <laughs> Let's talk about Smash Mouth. No. Uh, Ceausescu wanted his boulevard to be better, so he made it as long as he could, but then also a little wider, running east to west, flanked on both sides by symmetrical facades, home to various offices and apartments. And while the apartments were 
More numerous than the houses leveled in the Great Upheaval, they were originally intended only for usage by Romania's communist elite. Because Stalinist communism has elite. They have a leak? Elite. They have a leak? Drip? No, no. You got like a the, drip in your... Like it, a green, like a green onion. Oh. Yeah, like potato Like, like the little ducky in second gen Pokemon. Farfetch. Farfetched. And no, Farfetch was original. Farfetch was Kanto. Nah. Yeah, Farfetch was Kanto. Nah. That yeah. was second gen. No, it was not. What? I'm gonna Google that shit right now. Yeah, Google I'm, that shit. I'm willing to bet you a 15 minute. You Google that. that. I'm gonna start me. thinking about Smushmouth. They call him Smushmouth. Mouth. Hey, uh, for my birthday, Leah got me a blue sure. bucket hat that says Daddy in green font, and and it's written in the Shrek font, and the 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 capital D has little Shrek ears, cause I'm Shrek Daddy. Yo, Are- what up? Farfetched is a normal flying type Pokemon introduced in Generation One. Ah, oh, you're right. Something because of the dead. room with the uh, hole and uh, um, other things. Meowth, that's right. Well, now you owe me a back room. Thing is, the cheap ass concrete apartments weren't all too appealing, so the faux capitalist elite didn't want to live there. Aside. From in a few of the boulevard-facing top-floor suites, because <laughs> corner office with a bed, yeah, boy, get me at. And as for the offices, well, they were just offices. No real commercial space for shops or stores. So whatever bustling traffic had been expected to make the boulevard seem like a lovely, perfect little socialist neighborhood backfired. Because not only did none of the fancy people want to live there, but nobody even wanted to visit because there was nothing to visit. No shops, just offices. Yeah. Oh, that's like Bellevue. Oh, yeah. Garbage-ass fake city. It's like five blocks wide, five blocks long. Only skyscrapers. And then after those blocks, it's just nothing. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much it's a bridge to Seattle, and then that's it. The vast majority of Bucharest's shops, restaurants, and entertainment are north of the Civic Center across the Dambovita River. The east end of the Boulevard of the Victory of Socialism, now called Union Boulevard, is a roundabout, home to a small parking lot, and surrounded by Ceausescu's Stalinism-chic offices and apartments, which continue down the whole one and three-quarter miles long avenue like castle walls, buffeted only by deciduous trees. About halfway west from there, the space between opposing lanes of traffic begin to feature small fountains, and a third of the way through this fountain stretch is a second roundabout. Only this one circumvents the 160-foot-wide Grand Artisanal Fountain, with its dancing waters like the poor man's version of the fountain outside Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. And Rosie has awoken. At the far west end of Union Boulevard, overlooking the semicircular Civic Center, stands Ceausescu's magnum opus. The Palace of the Parliament. Located atop the historic Delul Spiri, or Spiriul Hill, known as Lupus Delore Hill, until 1765, the highest mountain Bucharest was rechristened in memory of Spiridon Christofi, a city doctor who founded the Spiri Vecchi Church there atop the hill. 
Also on the hill were the historic ruins of Curtia Nua, the new court residence of Alexander Ypsilantis, Prince of Wallachia, built in 1776 to replace the old princely court, Curtia Vece, which was a palace built in 1459 by Vlad the Impaler, Mr. Dracula himself. Hey, which we haven't talked about yet, and you we're said we're getting going. to it. These two ruins and the Spira Vece Church were. <laughs> Rosie. The way you just said Spiravece sounds like Arrivederci. And the Arrivederci Church were among those leveled by Ceausescu during the Great Upheaval. That's because, so of course, sad. you need to clear off the big hill to build your big house. Why the fuck do people tear down history? I, I don't get it. You because can... they want a, a big house. Fucking tear down a, a, a New England colonial. Don't tear down a fucking... Like, fucking, fucking math, 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 500-year-old building, church. Okay, um, but big house. I know, it makes so much sense, you're right. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. It's a big, big table with lots and lots of food. A big, big yard. Where we can play football. Touchdown! A big, big house. It's my father's house. What are you singing? That's that a church work mouth camp mouth. song. Oh, Smash Mouth, get the fuck out of here. It's audio adrenaline, boy. Back when I went to church a couple times. Ooh, ooh, painted houses for poor people. Don't let him fool you guys. He used to wear suits to a youth group. My mother required it of me. My friend told me they made fun of him. Yes, they did. I had no friends. She said that's how you made friends. You did have friends. I had one friend. His name was John. And then you had he, Kira. He got Emmy nominated. You had John. You had Kira. You had Jake. I f yeah, I inspired Jake to come to youth group because Amanda his mother attended the church. And I was like, Jake, you're my friend outside of church. How will you come make sure I'm less bored at church? And Caleb. And Caleb. Chocolate brown bear. You had friends. Yeah, but I had to make them. This was over a period of many, many years. Yeah, Chico. That's how friends work. You make them. But Continue. they made fun of me for so long. Continue. It hurt. Amanda still makes fun of you for it, but she's your friend. Amanda was nice. But she was there for like six months. Ceausescu. The Palace of the Parliament, he commissioned for Spiral Hill, was to be 276 feet tall. Or just over two-thirds of a football field in height. We're gonna play football. Touchdown! Uh, with the floor area of 3,930,000 square feet. That's a big apartment. Wait, real quick. Can we just talk about the fact that she was here and she's now here? Oh, yeah. She's uh, scooting and sitting and squeeping and squapping. I'm trying to give her boobie, but she just keeps scooting away. And I'm like, don't want to hit this. And it's a real awkward position. So... At 276 feet tall and 3,930,000 square feet of area, Palace of the Parliament is a volume, a volume of over 90 million cubic feet, making it the world's second largest civilian administrative building behind the Pentagon, the headquarters of the United States Department of Defense. Baby, you were sitting up and you're gawking at me. You got those big beautiful eyes and those sticky outy ears. I'll just think you're cute. <laughs> Little monkey. Little monkey. For comparison, the Palace of the Parliament exceeds the Great Pyramid of Giza 
by 2% volume. Jesus. That's a building. That's one building. Why is it as big as... Why, why is it bigger than the Great Pyramid of Giza? Because I'll tell you why. Big Ego. House. Yeah, big house. I want big house. Yeah. Uh, I, I want big house. Uh, okay, uh, Nikolai. You know, it's, it's going to be a lot of work and a lot of money to, to make big... Okay, yeah. I want big house. Yeah, oh, I mean, we'll get on... Yeah. How many lemons is this going to cost? <laughs> You're going to pay us on lemons? Yeah, I'm going to pay you on lemons. The Palace of the Parliament is also the heaviest building in the world. Is and it I'll... still up? <laughs> wow. I will get to why it's the heaviest in just a moment. Uh, but it weighs over 9 billion pounds. Or 4.5 million tons. That's more than a whale. Which is about... 40,000 of your average blue whale. Okay. Which is double the amount of blue whales alive on the planet. Oh, hey. Yeah. How much hay would it be? I, do you want me to Google it? No, I don't. Continue. I already do so much stupid math. Touchdown. Another way to look at it is compared to World One Tower, the tallest building in New York City, which weighs only half a million tons, or less than a ninth the weight of the Palace of the Parliament. And the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world, even weighs less than World One. Because of its immense weight, huge footprint, and choice of location, the Palace of the Parliament sinks into the ground six millimeters over the course of a year, year after year. So, since its completion over 20 years ago, the palace has sunk nearly half a foot, five and a half inches, into Spiral Hill. Damn. Beesh been sinking. Yeah, damn. Big house. Heavy house. My, my nine billion pound life. <laughs> now on TLC. <laughs> Their lead-in is uh, Thousand Pound Sisters. I'm Cammy. I'm Amy. I think you should switch their voices around. I'm Tammy. I'm Amy. That's better. Where am I looking? I'm Amy. Ceausescu. <laughs> I'm Tammy. I think I know Halloween costumes in my size. Sounds as a boulder. The, the architect of this megalithic display of opulence and the, of the civic center as a whole was a woman by the name of Anka Petrescu. She graduated college here in Bucharest in 1973 at the age of 24, and after winning a national design competition four years later, she was tasked with the entirety of the systemization project, the Great Upheaval, and the design and construction of what would become the heaviest building and second largest administration building of all time at the age of 28. Oh, wow. We talking about life experience? Nah. We talking about gumption. Gumption. Yes. Gumbo. For this, Anka Petrescu would earn the moniker the Albert Speer of Communism after the Nazi party's master architect, who didn't get quite as far in his own plans. I will say, his plans to redo Berlin were impressive and immaculate. Huh. And the Volkshall would have probably been, at that time, the largest administration building in the world. And it would have been 
pretty beautiful because it, it would have been a giant Romanesque dome. But at the same time, I cannot wish for a beautified Romanesque Berlin or a Vauxhall because that would mean supporting the Nazis. Yeah, so sorry. everything I just said, I take back. Right. Albert Speer sucks his own poop out of his butt. He he comes, he comes in his hand, he plunges it into his butt, then he rears his knees back and poops the cum out into the air and he catches it in his mouth. What are you talking about? Acrobatic felching. Like, you were kind of talking about something similar yesterday. Oh what? yeah. Where's what was it? Oh yeah, if um your only to... way of uh it onto the microphone. Rosie. Rosie. You're distorting the sound quality. <laughs> Here, play with the ring on a on a blanket. Blanket ring. That's your toy. It's seventeen sixty-five. We only have two kinds of toys. Straw dolls and rings made out of wood. She doesn't like the wooden ring. She does not like She doesn't like being back in seventeen sixty-five. Okay. Why don't you continue? I'm gonna go take care of her. Bye, baby. Daddy's gonna talk to imaginary Leah, and he's going to pretend to be her at all the points where she would probably say something. He's going to do his best impression. I'm Leah. I like eggs. Fuck you. I do like eggs, though. Aw, baby. Not much is known about Mrs. Petrescu. Aside from the lengths she took to win the national contest, and the manner in which she died, which was a coma following a car wreck in 2013. After hesitating to enter Ceausescu's post-earthquake design contest for a new Bucharest, Enka Petrescu finally submitted a proposal for a sprawling neoclassical estate, far larger than necessary, but magnanimous in that fact. She was only a junior employee with the state's civil engineers, and yet she placed second in one of the qualifying rounds. Ceausescu, however, could not decide among the many submissions, not to be unexpected from a poor decision-maker such as he was, so Petrescu quit her job and spent three straight months building a one-one-thousandth scale model of her design for the Palace of the Parliament, with every window glazed, every column ribbed, and every eave draped in gold leaf. She wrote letter after letter to the conducator asking if she could present her model, but she was rebuffed every time, until eventually Ceausescu relented and agreed to meet with Anka Petrescu. He was a good listener, a very patient man, she recalled. He wasn't a vampire! <laughs> did you hear that loud ass too? Yes, I did. That was a baby. I wrote that she said he was a good listener, a very patient man. He wasn't a vampire. And I know the first half of that quote is real. I can't remember if the vampire was uh, real. Did I put that in there or did she say that? I don't know. Either way, he wasn't a vampire, so it's accurate. The conducator circled the model, transfixed on its bombastic opulence, and by the end of the visit, he had named Anka Petrescu the winner. 
So the moral of the story is, if you want to design the world's second largest administration building, you gots to have persistence. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Anka Petrescu coordinated over 700 lesser architects in manufacturing the blueprints for the massive Palace of the Parliament, whose construction began seven years later in 1984. That's when construction began. Yes, Leah, I heard the fart. Whose construction began seven years later in 1984. It was to become what England's Daily Telegraph called the world's greatest monument to totalitarian kitsch. Its interior was divided into 23 sections, with two serving as the Houses of Parliament, the Senate and the Chamber of Deputies, while three others would host state museums. The National, the National Museum of Contemporary Art, the Museum of the Palace, the palace itself, and a museum for Romania's national struggle, which has recently been replaced by the Museum of Communist Totalitarianism. Appropriate. A foremost and central section of the palace is the International Conference Center, a room of immense volume with an immaculate domed ceiling. All but one of the remaining 17 sections were made available for departments of national works, assets, and interest, though they were never occupied. Oh, I'm Leah. You're telling me they, they weren't occupied, these 17 sections of this giant fucking building? They were made available for entire departments of the state, and they were never occupied? That's exactly... That's exactly what I'm saying, Leah. You're, you're telling me... You, you're telling me they made a whole building, and they didn't even bother to fill it? <laughs> well, hold on, you're getting, a, you, you, you're, getting, you're getting ahead of yourself, Leah. Okay, well, keep going. I don't want to hear about Smushmouth anymore. I'm not talking about Smushmouth. Now, if you were to go beneath the palace, you would venture into a network of over 12 miles of catacombs, interconnecting eight underground levels, the lowest of which is a nuclear bunker, because Nikolai Ceausescu was afraid of being killed in a nuclear holocaust, as, as he figured with all his egotism that should a nuclear war come, Romania would be an early target and casualty. Which I, I can assure you, it, it would not have been. The walls of this bunker are made of concrete, five feet thick, lined with steel supports on the inside, and divvied up into various rooms. Increasingly more opulent as you venture in with various war rooms, offices, and fully furnished apartments for the most elite of party members. So the Ceausescus and their friends could ride out Armageddon in style. I imagine they would also invite Nick Cage. It'd be a great way to, great way to, ride out the Armageddon, in style. Also within the palace of the Parliament, naturally the final section of the interior was a decadent home for the Ceausescu family, because what totalitarian society would be complete without an ungodly lavish abode for its socialist leader? Socialism sponsored by gilded diamonds and big fancy drapes made out of velvet and sheep dick. I'd like to cede the floor for the next 45 seconds to a Euro News segment from four years ago, 
or because I wrote this a long time from five years ago. Insert clip here. I think it was a very good idea for this palace to be open to the public, he says. It's good for the Romanians to see how they lived in that period and the decadence in which they lived. Decadence is exactly the right word. I had the opportunity to visit the Shah's palace in Tehran, but this palace is more interesting and has many more things to show. The Spring Palace in the upmarket Bucharest neighborhood of Primaveri boasts its own cinema. Visitors can also see Ceausescu's private office with its carved wood walls and silk carpets. The luxurious palace is in stark contrast to the life of ordinary Romanians who endured severe hardship under his rule. Yeah, and that video shows some of it. Like that man said, it is far more regal than your average monarch's home. E even the bathroom. Tiled like any other, but tiled in pink marble? And all the metal furnishes are gold-plated? Mirrors, faucets, handles, the flusher on the toilet, the hinges on the toilet seat, etc, etc. I've only seen one other abode as garish, gaudy, and desperately regal as the Ceausescu's manse. And that's Donald Trump's New York City penthouse in his own tower. Google it. Google it. It does make sense, Leah, in the other room. I'm telling you, you bring up pictures of both, you're going to be astonished that you're looking at pictures of two different places. They're the same, except they're in two different places. And this level of opulence found in the Ceausescu manse extends to the rest of the building, too. I cannot fathom the cost of construction for the Palace of the Parliament, and unfortunately, there is no surviving record that we know of uh, that breaks down the prices of any of it. But let's use our imaginations for a second. It's a building slightly smaller than the Pentagon and slightly larger than the Great Pyramid of Giza. It's 276 feet tall, divided into 12 stories, further divided into a thousand and a hundred rooms. It's got a floor area of 3,930,000 square feet and a volume of over 90 million cubic feet. There's over 30 million cubic feet of wood, walnut, oak, elm, sycamore, maple, cherry, and 35 million cubic feet of marble, white, gray, black, pink, and 2.2 million cubic feet of wool carpets, which had to be manufactured inside the palace with purpose-built machines because the carpets are so, are so large. And every one of the thousand windows is adorned with curtains of velvet and brocade, aside from the stained glass and the skylights, which derive from 660 cubic feet of glass. Two million tons of sand in the foundation, and over half a million tons of cement, on a frame of 700,000 tons of steel. Further decor includes a thousand tons of basalt and 70 times as much bronze for the details on the massive doors, windows, and column capitals. There's God knows how much silver and gold, but we do know there's over 3.5 thousand tons of crystals used in nearly 3,000 chandeliers, ceiling lights, and mirrors. A property assessment done in 2008 determined that the value of the Palace of the Parliament was at least $3.4 billion, which is over $4 billion today. 
Again, that is a low estimate, and even at that, a valuation of $4 billion makes this the most expensive administrative building in the world. Congratulations, Nikolai Ceausescu. Clap, clap, clap. Can we get some claps on the chat? Clap, clap, Can clap. I get a goddamn clap from a boy? Clap. Fish lip bitch. Clap, clap, clap. Or possibly tucked in. If it's any consolation, Nikolai Ceausescu did not live long enough to enjoy the palace. He had, in all his Soviet wisdom, determined that it would take only two years to complete the palace of the parliament. Two years to build the second largest civil administration building in the world. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to have to guess uh, that you be thinking with that dog brain, you dumb bitch. How long did it take... <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, how long did it take them to make the Pentagon? Uh, that's a good question. I'll Google it, but uh, similar, of a similar vein, the original World Trade Center, the Twin Towers, took slightly longer than two years to erect, and they're not nearly as large as the palace. They also used l largely prefabricated sections and had very little in the way of gratuity and employed a dedicated team of contractors. So they got no mas, no fuss, no coconuts. And what we got over here in Romania, we got we got a big old big old barrel of schnee. Big old barrel of schnee. Now let's Google the I'm not Pentagon. I'm sure if any of my audio is gonna appear with the way that I'm moving this. Pentagon construction. Can you see anything like on the thing when I'm talking? Say more words. Say more words. You're good. Okay. <laughs> bleep bleep be over here at saying words. Get out Construction on the Pentagon started on September 11th, 1941. Wow. Yeah, I know, because then they were damaged 60 years later to the day. What? By a plane. Wait, was that on purpose? plane no you dumbass <laughs> they did they did they think of the day and everything on oh no that was a, a horrible coincidence just cuz wow. uh, but they uh, they finished construction January 15th 1943 so you're looking at uh, a year and some months that's fucking bananas wait you were supposed to be looking up the Pentagon yeah. I'm looking up the Pentagon. Wait, did you say the Pentagon? Yeah. Oh. Did I say the pentagram? What did I say? No, I was looking at the baby, and I thought you said the, the towers again. Oh, no. The, that's a baby. That's a baby. Hey, do you know in a Spider-Man movie that uh, that get rid of a scene with the towers and catching a helicopter? Because when the movie actually came out, the, it was like the, the towers weren't there. I saw that, that on the internet. That's fun. Ceausescu. Ding dong, Mario. Ding <laughs> dong. So it was no surprise to us non-Soviets, anyway, that construction didn't wrap up in 1986 or in 1988. 
or even in 1990. Construction was called complete in 1997, eight years after Ceausescu was executed. Ceausescu was executed? Oh, yeah. Also, spoiler alert for the whole thing. Construction only (laughs) continued after his death because after all the demolition, all the costs, all the labor... To abandon such a project over halfway through construction would have been an egregious waste. And the building the palace in the first place wasn't an egregious waste? Well, it was, but uh, it's uh, kind of like when you're waiting in line for Stromboli. And the line's taken forever. The longer you're in line, the less likely you are to leave line. Yeah, that's true. It's a psychological thing where it's a, uh, what is it, a cost? I'm already here. Cost-loss ratio factor thing, theory, whatever. One time, when I was working at Coldstone, the fire alarms were going off, and almost everybody in line refused to leave. And when we told them they had to leave, they were like, why? And we're like, because the fire alarm is going off. Get out of the building. I believe it. Yeah. I uh, I wouldn't have left until I saw staff leaving. The staff was leaving. We were just trying to get the people out oh, of the Oh, yeah, building. I would have left if the staff was leaving. Otherwise, I'd be like, well, if the staff were working, then I'm going to stay in line. But if the staff left, I'd be like, they probably know what catches fire, so I'm going to leave. Because <laughs> ice cream's melted, and I'm going to die. And ice cream's melted. Man, the waffle cones are all burned. Right, Rosie? And... In 1997, you know, when I say they called it completed in 1997, I mean that they just decided uh, no more than what we have will be used. And that was about only uh, 400 of the 1,100 total rooms in the palace, meaning uh, 65% of the building is uh, undeveloped, unoccupied, unused, and empty. Gee, 65% of uh, that giant fucking building. You know how much of the Pentagon is being used? All, All of it. it. <laughs> yeah, even uh, even like the basement. And they got like 12, 15, a billion levels of the basement. They got a lot of basement. All basement. There are ductworks throughout, but the building is so large that its air conditioning system has not been used since the execution of the Ceausescu's. And with a volume of over 90 million cubic feet, the air inside gets stifling and claustrophobic in the summertime. In the colder months, they do heat the relevant areas of the palace uh, when they're in use, but the cost of electric lighting alone surpasses $6 million a year. $6 million to turn on the lights in the rooms they use. Your average mid-sized American city uses the same amount of power for the same duration. Six million dollars a year for the lights. For a city? For a mid-sized American city. So, like, Boston? Uh, mm, South Bend, Indiana. Austin, Texas. Uh, Savannah, Georgia. So bigger than Boston? Boston's like a very, very small big city. Okay. Gotcha. It's so Manchester. Oh, Manchester. Manchester. Yeah, Manchester, New Hampshire. Hi, buddy. Um, uh, Pittsburgh? <laughs> Pittsburgh's 
Yeah. Manchester's probably too small. Savannah's probably too small. Let's say Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Average in every respect. Pittsburgh. Why did you go here? Pittsburgh. Because I was born here. Pittsburgh. And I can never leave. That's the only reason. Unless you're Ben Roethlisberger. And you get drafted and you find some people to rape and you just stay in Pittsburgh. Shit. So if you wanted, you could think of the Palace of the Parliament as its own massive, sprawling, gaudy, costly, lonely, barren city. Fallout 5. Palace of the Parliament. Uh, Ceausescu's Palace. It's all indoors. This is boring. It is boring. It's empty. (laughs) Is the apocalypse even on? No. It's not. It's actually present day. But not in the building. In the building, there is no time. (laughs) It should be of no surprise that, as construction of the palace went underway, Nikolai Ceausescu spiraled closer towards despotism. He even rehabilitated the legacy of Jan Antonescu, changing the party's stance on the former general from that of Nazi villain to that of nationalist icon. And even though Ceausescu was drifting further back into Stalinism, he was still keeping Romania independent from the Soviet Union, which meant, regardless of whatever domestic struggles Romania was going through, the country was still doing great in the only realm that mattered to the West, its foreign interests. To the West, that is, the US, the UK, and France, Romania was just one of 170 tallies set on one side or another of a dark, impenetrable line. So as long as Romania stayed on the right side of the line, the West didn't give a damn. Had Ceausescu switched back over to kissing Soviets, the West likely would have called out Ceausescu for his many hypocrisies, his plundering of national coffers, his human rights abuses, his repression of his own people, etc., etc. But he didn't, so they didn't. In Romania, citizens who disagreed with Ceausescu had no allies. There was no compassionate body in power and no foreign interlopers with open eyes willing to check in on them like a grandmother or help return them their inalienable rights as humans. Any citizen that spoke up against Ceausescu, to other foreign leaders, was deemed an enemy of the West by those very nations, and the moniker of traitor would travel down the grapevine to the originator of the cry, who would be found and re-educated. If not punished, ooh. (laughs) You're so cute. It sounded like a growl. (laughs) It quickly became common sense, in what was essentially each person's own cost-benefit analysis, that there was no likelihood of positive impact for any act of courage. As the Ceausescu regime was too entrenched and menacing, and any act of courage would result only in pain or punishment, such as forced labor or internal exile, which imposed joblessness and poverty upon the individual and their family. Courage? I'm sorry, am I from the Midwest? Courage. That I'm from... Trent? Wait. Is that a place in England? Trent? Did you, Glamp? Did you not actually mean to say that? Uh, it. When I say the word courage, I say it like courage. But when I read it, I pronounce it as courage. Because when you say words, they're different than when you read them. 
and uh, my brain make the disconnect on a couple of words courage being one of them courage porridge you're right yeah I courage porridge the same thing but if you pronounce it carriage carriage what am i from boston carriage carriage there was one incident of courage that sent a momentary shockwave through the Romanian Communist Party. In November of 1979, at the meeting of the 12th Congress, when Constantin Privilescu, a high-ranking elder member of the party who looked like Mr. Clean, advocated for the dismissal of Nicolae Ceausescu. Holy shit, why would he do that? See, Constantin Privilescu had been one of the founders of the Romanian Workers' Party many decades prior, and had on Georgi... Do, Georgie do, George, on, George uh, on Georgie Georgie Udej's order, had been the one to threaten Stefan Forrest at gunpoint, coercing him into resigning as general secretary in favor of Georgie Georgie Udej, even though Georgie Georgie Udej was still in prison at the time. Constantin Privilescu was a true communist, and he had spent nearly 15 years. Yeah, it is. Years since Ceausescu took office, watching Romania tumble from reputable and sustainable in 1965 to laggard shambling disgrace by 1979. Ceausescu's mere existence had begun to irk Constantin Privilescu, as not only was he an inefficient and selfish leader, but he spent most of the country's resources on pretending it was otherwise. So at the 12th Party Congress, 84-year-old Constantin Chrome Dome Privilescu took to the podium and laid down the hurt. Brother, uh, I'm coming down with the real business. I got the truth, and I'm gonna swing it like a hammer. <coughs> That's what you get for impersonating Randy Savage. Brother. The cream of the crop rises to the top. Chrome Dome Privilescu shamed his colleagues, first for failing to address the domestic decline of Romania, its outdated industries, its crippled economy, its diminished welfare system, and so on, given that the tackling of these issues was specifically what the Congress was employed to do. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound familiar? Sounds a little familiar. Then, he pivoted from their neglect of Romania to their adulation of Ceausescu, railing about how undeserved it was, and how phony they were for giving it, and how they would rather glorify a dumb narcissistic asshole than attend to the needs of their nation. Again, does that, does that sound familiar? Does, that, familiar. does that sound familiar? Okay. I'm, I'm picking up what you're throwing down. Then Constantin Privilescu addressed Ceausescu himself. He's in the room, of course, accusing him of satisfying his personal pleasures with state resources rather than perform the demands of the leadership roles that his countrymen had quote-unquote elected him to fulfill, and that, with such a prolonged display of ineptitude, ignorance, and avarice, Ceausescu could not be trusted with another term in office, and as such should not be elected again to serve from 1980 to 1985, which, unfortunately, we know he did, so you can imagine Chrome Keep in mind, Constantu Privilescu was not some liberal or even progressive guy. He was, and always had been, 
pure statist, a pure authoritarian. He obliged Georgiou Udej's every command, as he did Stalin's. When Georgiou Udej got Khrushchev to pull Soviet forces out of Romania in 1958, Konstantin Privilescu was the only person in the Central Committee who opposed it, calling it even a, a betrayal and an outrage. The man loved Stalin. He would have he toked on that dick if it, if it was a stogie. Furthermore, Privilescu was 84 years old. He had nothing to gain politically from speaking out against Ceausescu. He was simply an old man. An old man who had been watching his beloved country, which he had helped rebuild from post-war rubble to thriving independence. So you said he looked like Mr. Clean, so oh. I imagined him to be like Mr. Clean aging, oh. and he said 80 and... Oh, he looked like him, but just old and wrinkly, like a tiny little penis. Like Benjamin Button if he went through a car wash. Outside of a car! Okay. He was an old man, and he watched Ceausescu undo all of that progress in just as much time, sliding downhill, sliding into the mud, along with all the other third world countries. To shame! Some Western press agencies reported on Privilescu's criticisms as light shining through a facade, as proof of dissatisfaction and dissonance in Romania, but nothing came of it, as there was no other outcries to follow. One man yells in a room and no one else yells. No one cares. One man yells and another man says, I concur. Then suddenly, oh, the floor's open, we can concur. I concur too. I concur too. Like that video of that guy who's dancing alone at a concert. Dancing, dancing, dancing. Just one other guy comes over. He just starts dancing too. Suddenly, two more guys are there. Yeah. Suddenly, four more. Eight more. Now it's a whole fucking party. Man, if I were the band. I think it was M.I.A. I think it was M.I.A. singing. I think it was, too. Or Santa Gold. Might have been Santa Gold. I think it was Santa Gold. Oh, come here. I got the beat oh, of the bubble. Uh, Privilescu, you see, had been pulled out of the room and exiled from the party, expelled from his seat in Congress and placed under house arrest for the foreseeable future. Privilescu's was the first and the last condemnation of Condicator Ceausescu by a high-ranking peer. This was enforced, of course, by the state's secret police, the Securitate, or literally, the Security, short for the Department of State Security. This group was founded shortly after Stalin seized control of Romania on August 30th, 1948. Originally under the NKVD, but eventually to earn self-sufficiency when the Red Army ended its occupation. At its height, the Securitate employed over 11,000 agents, while a further half million citizens were on the dole as informers. And for a country of a population of 22 million, that's a lot of informers. It's widely believed that one in four Romanians were active informers, which the Securitate happily went along with because the fear of always being watched is more palpable than the fear of maybe being watched. However, there's only proof enough that one in 43 Romanians was an informer. Still, that's a whole fucking lot of informers, which made it practically impossible for the country's dissatisfied masses to organize an opposition. And under Ceausescu, the Securitate was one of the most pervasive and brutal secret police forces in the world, responsible for thousands of unconstitutional arrests, torches, and moitas. Moita. Moita. Um, Yoder. Uh, do you mind putting her on her mat? Mat. Yeah. With her 
While Constantin Kromdon Privalescu made his act of outcry in late 1979, the first challenge posed to the Ceausescu regime was given two and a half years earlier by Bessarabian-born writer Paul Goma. Oh, you have. I'm pleased you remembered because I'm pretty sure last we talked about him was a year ago. Because we've been real, real <laughs> slow on this... Uh, podcast thing. Goma had always been a liberal, critical of the communists as much as, he, as, as much as he was the fascists, even at a young age. In 1954, he attended the University of Bucharest for writing, and in November 56, he was among those Bucharesti students who spoke out against institutionalized Stalinism as one of the tremor movements sparked by the ill-fated Hungarian Revolution. For this, he was arrested on charges of sedition, supposedly attempting to organize a strike, and he was sentenced to two years in prison, which he served at Jalava and Gurla, with a further five years of house arrest, earning his freedom finally in 1963. As a former political prisoner, Paul Goma was unable to return to college and had to scrape by with a manual labor job until, in 1965, a new decree allowed lightly sentenced political prisoners, like himself, to return to college, which he did in September of that year, readmitted as a first-year student to start his education from square one. However, two years into his studies, after reaching his junior year for the second time, the Securitate, under orders from the new General Secretary Nikolai Ceausescu, pressured Goma into resigning from the university. Under threats of internal exile and a return to Gurla prison, Paul Goma conceded and quit school. Poor guy. Yeah, I know. Guy can't win. After all the lengths of repression he'd been through, he decided to write a novel based on his experiences with the secret police and the dystopian nature that Romania was adopting. This novel, Ostinato, was barred by the censors. I did it again. Censor. Yeah. Was barred by the senses. After one claimed to have seen through the veil of Romana Clef and recognized Elena Ceausescu in one of the villains. Goma wasn't arrested, however, as the proof wasn't strong enough, and he turned instead to West Germany, where Ostinato was published in 1971. <laughs> Thank you, baby, for the sound effects. Baby, walking, talking, well, actually not doing either of those. Uh, lying, crying soundboard. Aww. She doesn't cry that much. I know, but... Uh, uh, pooing, cooing soundboard. There we go. Pooing, cooing soundboard. He then visited France, where he wrote another novel, Gurla, about his experiences at Gurla Prison. <laughs> oh, Gurla, please! <laughs> Romanian censors refused to publish this as well, so Goma had it published in France again in 1976. For those at home keeping score, that's two strikes. Joke upon the bat. <laughs> you're out. Oh, you're out. I was thinking of uh, Kurt, 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 
cricket? Does cricket have rules? I... Is that just a couple of, like, 30-year-old men wearing white tweed, just batting around sticks and something about a wicket? Do people cheer during cricket? No, I, f I think you have to face the opposite direction. Golf clap. I think everyone has to face west, and the game mm -hmm. has to face east. All right, so what happened? Uh, the following year, when a human rights group in Czechoslovakia protested their own communist regime's repression of artists, Paul Goma wrote an open letter announcing he stood in solidarity with them and their cause. Few of his friends were willing to sign it, calling him crazy, a magnet for punishment. So Paul Goma wrote a second letter, basically the same as the first, except this time addressed directly to Nikolai Ceausescu. As Goma, with a smirk across his face, wrote that he and Ceausescu were the only two people in Romania who weren't afraid of the security. The balls on Paul Goma. Jesus Christ. Hey, damn. <laughs> hey, Ceausescu, hey. Come over here. You know what you and I got in common that no one else, uh, no one else in uh, this room, no, no one else in this entire country they got in common? You and I, two of us, all the people not afraid of security. Uh, okay, uh, well, uh, we can change that if you want. I'm out of lemons. <laughs> uh, I respect the hell out of Paul Goma. That's not only bravado, but tenacity, stubbornness, and perseverance. I'd love to say I would have done the same. But seeing as he is the only one in Romania who ever did... Uh, Maybe he's one in a million. You know, I just wanted to say, because you said not only is, this, is that vibrato, this is vibrato. Bravado. Oh, bravado. Okay. <laughs> My mom, Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston. Wait. I think you're too octave low. We'll always nope. love you. That sounds like a horse. Uh, a, a horse with a throat full of water. Yeah, you you gonna OD on cocaine in a bathtub? Oh wait, no, that was her daughter, her niece, or no, was that her? That was, I don't know if she died in a bathtub. Maybe she did die in a bathtub. Mama Cass? No. Did Mama Cass die in a bathtub? Nah, she died in a hotel bed. Oh yeah, she died. Didn't oh. she die like covered in Subway sandwiches? No, she had. She she d died in her bed of a a bed made heart, out of Subway sandwiches. Heart stuff. No, fuck you. Heart stuff. I love Mama Cass, and also it is really sad. Whitney Houston and her daughter died in pretty much the same way, but I think they were moited. But that's another story for another day. By Bobby Brown. Yeah, probably. Oh, we're going to cover Bobby Brown someday. I love that story. It's not just like Bobby Brown. It's Bell Biv... I'm ruining it. I'm ruining it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, however, Goma's snarky letter became his third strike. <laughs> On February 17th, 1977, Ceausescu delivered a televised address in which he condemned the traitors of the country, specifically referring more than once to Paul Goma's letter. Paul locked himself inside his apartment. The day after Ceausescu's address, as Paul had predicted, police had his building surrounded. 
They weren't going to raid the place, but rather wait out Paul Goma to arrest him when he finally emerged. Recognizing he could not run errands, friends started bringing food over to Goma's, but police quickly caught on and barred access to the building to all non-residents. Paul phoned his friends to say there was no better time to sign his open letter, and soon they returned en masse outside his building. Not wishing to get violent and draw any further attention to Paul's impending arrest, the police relaxed their blockade, allowing anybody into the building, but arresting everybody who came out. Ah. Oh. Hey. Loophole. W- wouldn't, it, wouldn't it suck if you actually lived there? Yeah. And you're like, oh, I'm going to see Paul. Oh, okay. I'm not. I live, I live like, down the hall on the, f- on the floor below him. I'm not going to see him. Oh, sure, okay. I'm going to be running out for groceries later. Okay, it's fine. Two hours later. You guys remember me? Friend of Paul Gumma, get over here, you're going to jail. I told you, I just, I need to buy oranges. I should have bought them when I was out. I need to buy oranges, motherfucker. I forgot an ingredient for the scrumboli. During this time, Paul got over 200 signatures on his open letter, which means about 200 people willingly got arrested just to prove their dedication to the letter. The police started getting desperate. They phoned Paul and told him to emigrate to France or West Germany, but he refused. Eventually, on March 12th, the Secretary for Propaganda of the Central Committee phoned Paul and promised him that he could publish in Romania again, so long as he dropped the charade. Paul said he would, only if the Securitate would stop surveilling him. This could not be promised, and Paul hung up. A month and a half went by since Paul first barricaded himself in his apartment, and Nikolai Ceausescu was pissed that this had not yet been resolved. It was supposed to be bloodless and quick, he said, not realizing that those are generally two separate options. So he paid former boxer Horst Stumpf to break into Paul Goma's apartment, which he did, and he beat the fucking shit out of Paul passing in and out of the police cordon unimpeded. This happened day after day for over a week. Horst Stumpf slips through the blockade, bursts into Paul's apartment, beats the shit out of him, and slips back out. A few friends decided to hole up with Paul in his apartment to dissuade the attacks, which they fortunately did. Uh, French television station Antenna 2 then came calling. Uh, filming an interview with a bloodied and bruised Paul Goma in his apartment. Shortly afterwards, Ceausescu decided enough was enough, and he ordered Bucharest's police to storm upstairs and arrest Paul Goma, which they did, and he was hauled away to prison. The state expelled him from the Writers' Union of Romania, too, which was just insult to injury, and literal injury! Insult to literal injury. Mm-hmm. In the wake of his arrest, intellectuals and artists around the world called for his release, among them was French-Romanian playwright Eugene Ionescu, French philosopher and existentialism expert Jean-Paul Sartre, and American playwright Edward Albee, known for 1962's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and his hometown peer, Arthur Miller, known for 1949's Death of a Salesman, 1953's The Crucible, and his 1956 marriage to Marilyn Monroe. With Romania's centennial of... In- with Romania's centennial of independence on the horizon and Ceausescu wishing to keep it clear of bad press, he released Paul Goma four days prior to the centennial on May 6th, 1977 with second page state coverage. Hey. Hey. We got married on that day. But only 
40 years later. Holy shit. If only I knew we could have celebrated the 40th of Paul Goma's, you know, just to, cre eh. and to, to Chris's Goma. book, to Tyra's health, and to Paul Goma, may mm. he uh, not be in jail. Mm. All right. Mm. All right. <laughs> Paul fled Romania six months later, on November 20th, and went into exile in France. Three years passed without incident, until on February 3rd, 1981, Paul Goma and former Interior Minister Nicolae Pinescu, who was also self-exiled in France, each received a package in the mail. Pinescu got to his first, opening it to find a book. A gifted, nondescript book, and when he opened the cover, it exploded in his I face. Knew it. The book had been hollowed out, then packed with shrapnel and a sliver of plastic explosive. Pinescu survived, albeit with a shredded face. Goma, who had received two death threats by phone in the weeks prior, upon arrival of his unrequited package, immediately called the police, who discovered and disarmed the book bomb. These two parcels were traced back, through their sending address, to a man contracted by Carlos the Jackal, a Venezuelan terrorist who was, at the time, incarcerated for the 1975 murder of a French informant and two French counterintelligence agents. Even after the Panescu Goma book bombs were traced back to Carlos the Jackal, he continued to orchestrate assassinations from behind bars, inevitably killing 11 more and injuring 150 in the process, for which he would receive three additional life sentences. Um, excuse me. Why would you be so dumb as to use your address? Why would you put a return address on your fucking assassin attempt? I can't answer these questions for you. <laughs> Just like fucking like. I think maybe you're like, well, it'll blow up the package. Well, actually, they take it out of the package, they put the packaging aside, and then they just have the bomb. Okay, but it will blow up the, the package. Okay, uh, it's a small bomb in a book. It's not a truck bomb. Yeah. It'll blow up in his face and maybe kill him. Oh, it didn't kill him. It didn't even kill him. Okay, well, the packaging is fine. I don't know what you, I think you thought it would be a giant incendiary bomb. You're it's dumb. not. It's in a book. It's not even a big book. It's a normal sized book. Right, Rosie. Carlos the Jackal was a lifelong Marxist Leninist, and he devoted himself to serving Amy and all communist nations seeking to eradicate their political enemies. It is widely accepted that Ceausescu or Ceausescu's Minister of the Interior at the time, contacted Carlos the Jackal to kill Paul Goma and Nikolai Panescu. No! Yep. There was another assassin dispatched a month before Carlos the Jackal to kill Paul Goma, but he had not been so inclined. This would-be assassin was Matai Haiduka. Haiduka! <laughs> Born in Bucharest in 1948 to a high-ranking official in the Ministry of the Interior early into the Georgiou Dej era, Matai Haduka was groomed from birth to protect the regime, and thus he became a most trusted agent, eventually tasked to the Foreign Intelligence Directorate of the Securitate. Sent to France in 1975, Matai Haduka 
embedded himself in intellectual circles, committed to industrial espionage, with particular regard to France's developments in nuclear technology. This is what he signed up for. The thrill of sneaking and listening, and picking locks, and copying documents in the dark. Fun spy shit. But, on January 13th, 1981, Matai Haduka received an urgent order from his superior, General Nikolai Plesita, to murder two dissident writers exiled in France, Virgil Tanas and Paul Goma. Thing is, even for being born into and raised in the House of the Securitate, Matai Haduka was no killer. So, upon getting his new orders, he contacted the French Secret Service, the Directorate of Territorial Surveillance, and together they orchestrated a plan to fool Ceausescu while still appearing loyal. Paul Goma, who had already survived the book bombing, attended a social event in the summer of 1981 and, with other Romanian security agents watching, Matei Haduka poisoned Goma's drink with ricin, a highly potent toxin requiring only a few salt-sized grains to kill an adult. But <coughs> whoopsie-daisy, some clumsy guest, as the report later said, bumped into Goma and spilled his drink. Oh no! Darn! In actuality, a French agent had knocked Goma's drink from his hand, with Goma never knowing he had... He, he, he was both threatened and saved within a span of 30 seconds. He had no idea! So, so they made him seem like he was doing the, doing the right, quote-unquote, thing. Yeah, like... But I see. But okay, it was like, oh, that's hey, stupid civilian. Matt, hey, here's the rice and... Okay, I put it in this drink. Now go give it to Goma. Okay. That, that's... You're hiring me as an assassin when all you need me to do is pretend to be a waiter for five seconds? Okay, okay. Okay, I gave it to, I gave him the drink. Second guy. Boop. Ah, oh, I, I spilled this guy's drink. Oh, no. My good golly gosh, how clumsy of me. <laughs> and then the security agents are like, Oh, man, the, the rice and guy spilled. I guess, like, man, back to the drawing board. What else could we do? Could we just, like, kill him right now? No. Whenever I hear ricin, I think about, um... The episode of, I think it's like one of the last episodes of Breaking Bad. So, spoiler alert, and I'm sorry if you haven't fucking seen Breaking Bad yet, you're, you're years too late. Season four. Oh, season four? Wait. No, 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 I think it's one of the last episodes. Oh, I'm you... thinking of the flower with the boy. Yeah. Ricin, oh. ricin, ricin. Oh, ricin. yeah. No, 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 it was, um, it was, he like slipped the ricin into the chick's Splenda packet. Right, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And um... And then, like, he calls her... Andrea. And... No, not Andrea. Fuck. Anyway, he calls her, and then he's like... He's like, so, are you feeling under the weather? And... Yeah. yeah. She's got, like, the sniffles and, uh... And she's like, but you can't do this, I have a daughter. It's a good show. Yeah, it's a good show. Hey, if you haven't watched Breaking Bad, uh... <coughs> your only excuse is that, uh... You only just became a teenager, so the show is kind of before your time uh but if you're older than 15 older than 14 uh go watch breaking bad you idiot has bethany seen breaking bad i don't know bethany watch it if yeah. you have already good either watch it or watch yourself <laughs> i'll send i'll send him mataya haduka to put rice in and yeah, your applesauce she grabbed her tambourine Oh, Bethany loves her tambourine. Oh, baby? 
baby. Yeah, Rosie loves her tambourine too. I think Bethany's addicted to the tambourine. We should really call someone, have an intervention about Bethany's yeah. addiction to tambourines. I agree. Uh, as for Virgil Tanas, the other targeted writer, a fake kidnapping was staged on May 20th, 1982, with Tanas pulled into a car by masked men in a crowd of unsuspecting witnesses, and he was whisked away to safety while French police reported on the discovery of his corpse. Bum bum bum. We found a corpse. It's Virgil Tanas. Um, excuse me, I'm Virgil Tanas. Can you be quiet? We're doing a fake news story. Oh, okay. I'll go back in the car. I'll go back in the trunk. The president of France, François Mitterrand, was informed of the two falsified assassinations, and on June 9th, he held a he held a press conference specifically to address Nikolai Ceausescu, criticizing his leadership. Baby. <laughs> She's like, I'm done with this. Criticizing his leadership and condemning his actions, in addition to canceling his scheduled visit to Romania. Naturally, admitting all of this to the international press meant Matei Aduka just got his boat burned, as the only person who could have spilled the beans on this was him. Worse yet, his family was still in Romania, and God knows what consequences they might be subjected to as punishment for his actions. So, using his skills as a security agent, Matai Hauduka crept and conned his way back into Romania, wrangled up his family, and shepherded them back to France, where he confirmed his story to the French press in exchange for asylum. Ceausescu sentenced Hauduka to death in absentia, and all of his properties in Romania were seized by the state. In exile in France, Matei Haduk changed his name to Matthew Forrester. He married, <clears throat> he married a French woman after his wife divorced him for hardship, and he had two children. In 1984, he published a book called I Refused to Kill, detailing his experiences in the security. He died of heart failure in 1998 at age 50, which, despite my itch to see all narratives tied in a bow, was not the result of a poisoned drink. He just had heart failure. That's sad. Yeah. He did, he did good, though. He's a good guy. He, he did good. He's a good guy. So, uh, one, of those, uh, one of those situations where a morally gray guy is told to become even badder, and then he goes, shit, I've been being bad, haven't I? It's only going downhill from here. You know what? I'm going to be good. Why would he change his name to Matthew Forrester, though? Because it's a new name, and uh, it's got to be, like, super boring. That way no one uh, no one uh, will ever think to look up. Because if you chose, like, Matt Damon, it would be like, man, what would he, what would, uh, what would he change his name to? Matthew Hadouken. Uh, Matt Damon, because Matt Damon's awesome. He wants to be like Matt Damon. Google it. Google it right now. I don't think he... Oh, he, he's Matt Damon. He's Matt Damon. We have to go kill Matt Damon. How do you spell his, his legal, his first name? Uh, his real name? Yeah. Uh, M-A-T-E-I. Last name H-A-I-D-U-C-A. As for Paul Goma, he remained in France as a protected refugee and continued to write up until his death on March 25th, 2020, at the age of 84, as a result of contracting the COVID-19 virus. COVID killed Paul Goma because it's the only thing that could. Not 
books, not bombs, not ricin, nor the drink that the ricin was put in, <laughs> not totalinate. He was, sorry, not to. Not totalitarian. Francesco. <laughs> and? Uh, uh, he died at like the very beginning of COVID-2. Yeah, very it was beginning. when I was writing that, I looked it up and he literally had just died. Like, it, let's see. I, cause I got laid off like the first of April and I was still writing this, this part when I was at work between like not doing anything. So it would have probably have been, I should have wrote it down, but I know it was literally like I looked it up and I was like, that was just recently. It was literally like a days or so earlier. Hell, uh, this might have been the last thing I wrote at, at work. Who knows? Oh yeah, maybe. Uh, he apparently, after 2000, Goma has expressed opinions on World War II, the Holocaust in Romania, and the Jews, claims which have led to widespread widespread allegations of anti-Semitism. I forgot about that. So he's not all good. Nope. No one is. Do you want to hear me burp? No. Rosie says no to a few months after Goma's open letter was published in 1977, Communist Romania experienced its first major strike. Too much drool, baby. Too much drool. And she scares me. The miners of Jew Valley lost their disability pensions in July, after Ceausescu reappropriated, reappropriated those funds to his new civic center plans, while their retirement age was raised from age 50 to age 53 overnight. No one asked him. Just come in the next day. Uh, so everyone, uh, Gary in particular, I know, uh, hold on, uh, you know retirement, okay, uh, well it's not, uh, everyone's gonna wait three more years, I know Gary, I know you got two more weeks, well you got three years and two weeks. What are you talking about? I bought a boat, My Gary! My cake is in the <laughs> fucking fridge! It's fudgy the whale! Well, we'll, we'll save it in the freezer for th th three years and two weeks, Gary. Outraged. Ooh, speaking of outrage. Baby, you, 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 you got the little feet, the little feet, my baby, little feet. <laughs> Outraged, the miners laid their tools down and stood in solidarity outside the site office. I, when you said miners, I pictured children. Every time we talk about minors, you say, Oh, I think of it as, like, children. Well, uh... No, I'd call them kids. <laughs> uh, Ceausescu commissioned Ile Verdet, a gopher, a gopher bureaucrat who Ceausescu later appointed prime minister, to visit them in the town of Lupani and quell their spirits. But his ability to negotiate was more that of an authoritarian, 
and such derisiveness led the miners to seize him physically and his staff, taking them hostage for two days, though Verdet would assert until the end of his life that, oh yeah, I wasn't taking hostage, I, I was just hosting a closed-door negotiation with the miners. The miners, meanwhile, not kids, they're physical choppy choppy pickaxe coal, coal monkey miners. Coal monkey miners. Uh, the miners, meanwhile, called for Ceausescu to visit them himself and negotiate in person. And as you may recall, Ceausescu referred to himself as first among the country's miners in his barrel scraping propaganda pieces, but surely these miners were no friend of his, so then who is first among the country's miners? Can I get a goddamn answer? Probably the first person born in Romania because they were a minor, a Romanian minor. I understand the joke, yeah. and I do not enjoy it. Do you get it? You're so fussy. You know who's first among the country's minors? That Petru Groza. Petri Gioza? Dr. Petru Groza, I'm sorry. Dr. Petru Groza. Doc, doc, doc to Petro Groznan. Doc to Petro Groznan. Um. Loric. Oh, yes. Loric. Yeah. I'm feeling, uh. Humber and Loric. I'm feeling Loric. Ooh, it's a squishy monkey. It's a squishy monkey. See, I'm gonna hold you. But that means you can't make any noise because now you're technically in front of the microphone here too. I know, you're so smiling. Look at you. She's like, why is bringing out dad? She's like, daddy, I haven't seen you all day. Mm -hmm. Daddy, I haven't seen you all day. You saw me for like 15 minutes of fussy fussiness. Oh. And then you went back to booby. And then, here we are. Like in that late 1980s sitcom about kids at Laguna Beach going to high school. Back to booby. Spelled with a two. I know two one more. Back to booby. Mm. You're so cute and smiling. <laughs> she just wanted <laughs> love. She's like, my damn parents just put me down on this mat. They don't even let me turn on the goddamn piano. Now my hand took him there. The frog again. The elephant too. The lion said, how do you do? Ceausescu, however, couldn't visit Lupeni in the Jew Valley because as soon as the strike broke out, he'd gone away with Elena on a yacht excursion through the Black Sea. As the two days of holding hostages carried on, however, and with that Jim Belushi-looking motherfucker Eli Verdet screaming into the phone, Ceausescu relented and turned his yacht around, taking a helicopter to the Jew Valley on August 3rd. Some 40,000 miners, half of the local workforce, were gathered when he arrived, and while some were, and while some were shouting, Ceausescu and the miners! Ceausescu and the miners! He, he loves us! Most were shouting, Lupeni 29! Lupeni 29! In reference to the Lupeni strike of 1929, which the Romanian Communist Party's propaganda machine had immortalized as one of the great workers' movements that laid foundation for the Romanian Communist state. So I guess it's, uh, 
Because they're kind of like calling on the Boston Tea Party as Bostonians, but when you're protesting the government for being like the English. Like, hey, remember, like, you know, what we're about? No yeah, you're not doing that. representation. Joke's on us, America. Yeah, and we don't want tea. Where's the Dunkin' Donuts? You know Where's what, Where's the Dido's? Learning about the Boston Tea Party and how uh, much tea they actually threw into the ocean, that's a fuck ton of tea. Uh, I heard the bay tasted great for a little while. You're joking. No. Actually? Yeah. Really? I wonder if the fish tasted different. Oh, uh, tea fish. Yeah, because like they didn't, obviously they didn't have tea bags. They had like tea blocks and they would sell tea by like cutting off ounces of the blocks and stuff. So it was like all the stuff they threw. Did you into get a sixteenth? Sixteenth tea block. Sixteenth tea. Sixteenth tea block. I don't get it. You scrape <laughs> off a piece of that that leafy green block. <laughs> that that dried herb. Yeah, can I get a sixteenth of that? Uh, you know, that you're good stuff. Oh, Earl Grey. Yeah. <laughs> the least likely out of anyone in the world I know to do drugs, but yet you know all the little, the lingo and shit. You're funny. No. Well, maybe. John Dobre, a pit brigade chief, read the workers' grievances to Ceausescu, listing 26 reasonable welfare demands regarding the likes of pensions, medical care, food rations, labor supplies, work hours, production targets, and adequate housing, with further expectations that they could organize a workers' commission to collaborate with the state executives to ensure they no longer work under incompetent or corrupt managers and that they would not be punished for organizing in the first place. When he finished reading their list of demands, as John Dobre later recalled, while my name was being shouted, I turned toward Ceausescu and gave him the list from which I had read. And he said to me, uh, Thank you for informing me, comrade. Once in front of the microphones, Ceausescu was not allowed to speak. Some were booing him, others shouted that they wouldn't go into the mine. And from afar, one could hear my name. Ceausescu appealed in vain for quiet with raised arms. Visibly shaken and with a trembling voice, Ceausescu leaned into the microphone and began a rambling speech. A rambling seven-hour-long speech. Jeez, talk about a filibuster. Which was kept lively with the frequent interjection of booing from the 40,000-strong audience of miners. Who just stayed? And, yeah, I was going to oh say, I would have gone home. I would have had dinner. I know, after like the first 20 minutes, I'd been like, this guy's... He's what he's not doing. What's he talking? And then like you hear like six hours later, are oh, you still going? What do you mean? Oh, he, Ceausescu's still out there. He's still talking. Well, I've watched like the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy on Blu-ray. <laughs> it might have been one of those things like we were talking about earlier, where people were there for like an hour, and then they were like, uh -huh. "Well, at this point, we might as well see how long he goes for." Yeah, he has to leave first, or else he wins. Seven hours later. Well, I'm dying. I'm dead. My, my feet have turned black. I've got diabetes and I'm dying. Oh, I can't work in the mine because I have a disability. Whenever Ceausescu stumbled on his words, some of the crowd laughed and whistled. 
With his spirit quickly deflating, Ceausescu tried to reason with them, relying on party policy, quoting bureaucratic edicts, and when that failed, he, turned, he tried to turn the tables, saying that party leadership had tried to reduce working hours, but the miners had refused. Baloney. And the miners, clearly insulted, hollered in reply, chanting, It is not us, bandits, thieves! It is not us, bandits, thieves! Comrades, Ceausescu said, this is not the war. I thought he was... Comrades, okay. This is not the war. This is a disgrace for the entire nation. Uh, a disgrace. I've taken note of your grievances. Members of the crowd replied, Then enact them! I've taken note of your grievances. And? Yeah, I've taken note. I wrote it. I, I, I hear you. Do it. I hear you. Do it. I hear you. I hear you. I, I need a lemon. Anyone else need a lemon break? <laughs> Others demanded a six-hour workday be implemented tomorrow. I want it tomorrow. Asked and answered. I, I want an investigation the next day. The next day! That's Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, oh. He punches yachts. Well, that sounds about right. Yeah, and he, uh, he um, says, bitch, boo-swigging bitch. Ceausescu said, ah, six-hour workday. Ah, it will be soon. It, it will be soon. To which the angry, angered crowd said, tomorrow! But Ceausescu held his ground. Eh, I'm not bad tomorrow. Soon. And when your parents says soon, they mean never. That, that guy that said it should be tomorrow, uh, he actually had a doctor's appointment that he didn't get time off for. So. I've got lung cancer! I've been in the mines! Well, you shouldn't have been in the mines. I'm it, a miner! No, nobody told you. Yep. Nobody told you to be in the mines. Nobody told you to be in the mines. Yeah, no, it. Shit. Should have been president. Murmurs trickled through the crowd and group anger turned into individual outbursts. Anger. Hermione, group anger. <laughs> he, he has no idea what the people's interests are, one man said. He is not concerned about the workers' fundamental interests, said another. As the outcries blossomed into an insatiable, constant shouting, Ceausescu threatened his crowd with violence, saying, If he... <laughs> If you do not go back to work, we'll have to stop pussyfooting around. That one you didn't say verbatim. I was going to uh, say, yeah. did he say that? No. Uh, at this, the miners began to shout in unison, Down with Ceausescu! Down with Ceausescu! The almighty condicator backed away from the podium, terrified that the crowd may seize him and tear him limb from limb. A vocalized fear confirmed by both Yulay Verdet and John Dobre, who were standing next to him on the stage. The latter seized the microphone, John Dobre, and soothed the crowd, urging them to let Ceausescu continue. And the crowd's anger subsided, and Ceausescu retook the podium, offering false promises in order to appease the miners. Whoa, a politician offering false promises? He parroted the miners' own demands back to them, in his own wooden dialect, relying on the list Dobre had handed him. He's just <laughs> glancing down at and, and, uh, and, um, like, I've better heard, work, and, uh, I've heard your demands, but, uh, let me read them off a list real quick. 
Yeah, like, uh... I forgot. What? When we were, uh, seniors, I think, and electing a oh, high school Nick? class president. Yeah. No, no, our... that was, uh, that was Fresh... freshman year. Freshman year? Freshman okay. Year. Freshman year, <laughs> uh, our best friend, one of our best friends, we love him. He has some goofs in the past that we fucking adore <laughs> and cherish, See, and I... we will tell these eventually... But oh, we're not making no, no. We're not making we're not fun. making fun of you. Honest it's just, to God, it's just it's cute. It is fun. It's, it's cute, cute and it's fun. <laughs> you messed up and it's. We're not making fun of. We're having fun with, with. because it's such. I oh, he does things that he doesn't intend to do, and they're, and they're fucking so hilarious. fucking hilarious. <laughs> so it's freshman year. We're doing this big auditorium thing where all the people who want to be class president go up and do a speech and he goes up and he has uh, his, <laughs> his speech on the paper and he starts reading it and then he goes I don't need I don't need this I'm gonna speak from the heart and he, he rips it up and everyone cheers and then like the two pieces of paper are like on the podium and then he like he kind of pushes them together and like he just occasionally glances down at it while he just to make sure he's I, still doing his speech. I'm pretty sure he pulled out another piece of paper. Oh, he did? Yeah, he pulled because he had one of those shirts with the pocket on the front. <laughs> I'm like 95% positive he like pulled it out from the front, unraveled it, and then put it down on the podium and started reading off of it. And we're all like... Nick! <laughs> Come on! Oh, I love Nick. Yeah, me too. He's funny. Happy birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> we'll tell that story another time. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Uh, reading off of uh, Dobre's list, Ceausescu promised to honor each of the miners' requests, including weekends off and a six-hour workday starting tomorrow. He also promised that no punishment would be brought upon the miners for revolting, oh, to which no. the crowd cheered and applauded, because let's believe him. Let's believe him. Uh, yeah. He's given us. He's never given us a reason not to believe him, including uh, the past uh, seven hours, the... Two days of bitchery before that, and then the strike preceding that, and also the stuff leading up to the strike. No punishment. Okay, yeah, woo, we believe you. Uh, calm down, Ceausescu then said, and go back to work. That's uh, that's a quote. I should have done it in the cricket cricket voice. Uh, uh, calm down, calm down. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, it's time to go back to work. Let's go back to work. Okay, can we go back? You get in it. <sighs> Any of you guys got a lemon? He left the podium, woozy and weak in the knees, <clears throat> having to lean on the shoulder of one of his bodyguards in order to make it back to his helicopter. Not having had enough lemons. No, he, he was getting scurvy. He was getting scurvy from standing for too long. The man lives in a chair. And you ask him to stand for seven hours straight. Come on! He left the podium, woozy, weak in the knees. And he leaned on the shoulder of one of his bodyguards in order to make it back to his helicopter. And as he departed, an exhausted Ceausescu confessed his insecurities to Ilay Verdet, <laughs> saying, Ooh. <laughs> saying, You know, I just feel like I'm not doing enough to make Elena love me, you know? And I just, I just you know, people start saying my nose is too big, and I don't think I have a big nose. Do I have fish lips? Look at my lips. Do I have heat lips? Look at my lips. 
Sir, you do not have fish lips. You can't do you can't do it. No, I'm... I, do you want me to be honest? Oh my god, I have fish lips. Don't I? <laughs> I knew it. Is promptly executed. Saying to Eli Verdet uh, that the miners should not have had the chance to organize the way that they did. And that something must be done to ensure it never happens again. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, you I'm Eli Verdet, remember? Uh, didn't you just say, like, 45 seconds ago, no punishment will be brought upon the miners for revolting? Okay, well, I think you're taking that out of context. <clears throat> that evening, the third shift miners returned to work, certain that their demands would be met with the coming weeks. Some miners were so optimistic, too, that they returned to work off-schedule in order to make up for lost time. <sighs> for the good of the colony! Ah, uh, those foolish, gullible fucking idiots. The promises, however, would not be kept. <laughs> what? And in the coming weeks, over 4,000 miners were arrested by the Securitate and imprisoned, or relocated to new work sites. The following month, when another mine attempted to go on strike, the Securitate arrested its union leaders and subjected them each to five-minute-long chest x-rays in an attempt to give them cancer. Five-minute-long checks... Five-minute-long chest x-rays in an attempt to give them cancer. This actually happened. It was a thing that the Securitate did to their enemies. We'll talk about it again later. Okay. Uh, neither strike was reported, uh, was reported on by the state media, and the events faded into obscurity for another decade. After, you know, the regime fell and they found all the papers. As for Eli Verdet, Ceausescu made him prime minister two years later, and he served in the role for three before retiring to a life of luxury. When the Ceausescus were executed in late 1989, Verdet declared himself the head of a provisional government, but he was overthrown after only 20 minutes. All right. Okay, I'm head of the government. No, you're sure, not. Sure, yeah, we'll give you, let's say we'll give you 20 minutes before we slap the fucking shit out of you. <laughs> Uh, he founded the Socialist Party of Labor in 1990 in an attempt to stay relevant, but they failed to win seats in the subsequent elections. Verdet died of a heart attack in 2001 at the age of 75. Sucks to suck. <laughs> Sucks to suck. Just kidding. Now, you may recall from the last episode my mentioning of yeah. Jan Mihai Pathepa the elderly Corey Feldman impersonator, tasked with fostering and grooming the Contecator's youngest son, Miku. Yes, I remember now. <laughs> Jan Pasepa was a three-star general in charge of the Securitate, in addition to being Ceausescu's advisor on industrial and technological development, the deputy head of the Foreign Intelligence Service, and a state secretary in the Ministry of Interior. <laughs> Pasepa was a busy boy. Was he qualified? For those last three? No, probably, probably, I don't, know, I don't think he was. Maybe foreign intelligence, but I think he just liked to beat people up and cover up things in the newspaper. Pasepa had more than he could ask for, but the demands of his many roles mounted, and in July 1978, Ceausescu finally demanded too much. Ooh, you're asking too much of a man. Finally, how many years? 20. It was an ordinary day. Nobody suspected anything as Jan Mihai Pasepa boarded his plane and flew out of state to the city of Bonn in West Germany, southeast of Cologne. 
In Bonn, he strolled the sidewalks like any other. His task was to visit the Radio Free Europe broadcasting station, where expatriate Noel Bernard helmed the Romanian language section. But Pasepa took a sudden detour through the revolving door of the American embassy and disappearing inside, catching his bodyguards off... uh... off guard. Which must mean they're bad at their jobs. Hmm. In a letter to his daughter Dana, which she published in a French newspaper in 1980, Jan Pasepa wrote, in 1978, I got the order to organize the killing of Noel Bernard, the director of Radio Free Europe's Romanian program, who had infuriated Ceausescu with his commentaries. It was late July when I got this order, and when I ultimately decided between being a good father and being a p political criminal, and knowing you, Dana, I was firmly convinced that you would prefer having no father to having one who was an assassin. Pasepa's guise for visiting Bonn, for staking out the Radio Free Europe station, was to hand deliver a letter from Ceausescu West German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt. Instead, Pasepa informed the diplomats at the American Embassy of his assignment and of his greater wealth of information and President Jimmy Carter personally offered Pasepa asylum, if he shared his knowledge. Pasepa accepted and was rushed by American jet to Andrews Air Force Base outside Washington, D.C., where Carter met him and welcomed him to the United States. Gotta love that Jimmy Carter. He's an everyman for sure. Peanut farmer, politician, president, beautiful man, humanitarian, builds houses, loves children. Jimmy Carter. Help save Bobby Hale's family. Happy Christmas. I'm Jimmy Quarter. <laughs> As for Noel Bernard, Ceausescu never relented. He sent loyal security agents to Bonn, who infiltrated the Radio Free Europe station, and jerry-rigged x-ray equipment into the floor beneath Bernard's desk. Oh my god, it's again with this? Oh no. You know, there's other ways to give people cancer. Yeah, 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 but this is pretty cool, like... Let's be honest. They sneak into the building Watergate style, but succeed, and they go into the floor and affix an x-ray machine to blast up at the seat he uses at the radio station desk. I don't know what the x-rays look like. What the x-rays look like? Yeah. Wavelengths? Wave, wave, invisible light? So, like didn't just have like a bunch of images of his like colon basically it wasn't a, f a full x-ray machine it was an x-ray emitter it was emitting I'm disappointed Continue. Okay. Um, the machine turned on with the electric lights and within weeks Bernard had acquired cancer what his file found after the fall of communism included a magazine article about his undergoing surgery, clipped with a note that read, The measures undertaken by us are starting to have an effect. Noel Bernard died of irradiation in December 1981. Oh my god, it worked. Yeah. I mean, when you don't know that every time you turn on the light switch, you're being ass-blasted, by x-rays non-stop the entire work day you're just sitting there being ass blasted by x-rays yeah. 
His colleagues, brothers Emil and Vlad Georgescu, were given the same treatment. They were they were in the same same room. Casualties. They died in quick succession. A fourth Romanian expatriate, critical of Ceausescu, the DJ Cornel Chirac, was stabbed to death in a supposed mugging outside his car in Munich. Weird that it happened around the same time, though. Yeah. A mugging. Mm. No known suspect. At a car in a parking garage in Munich. Mm. No, no, like, robbery, just a, just a stab. Oh, wait, mugging you. Just kidding. When Jan Pasepa defected to America, the information he supplied on Ceausescu's regime delegitimatized, 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 the information he supplied on Ceausescu's regime delegitimatized, fucking Christ, the information, the information he supplied on Ceausescu's, when Jan Pasepa defected to America, the information he supplied on Ceausescu's regime delegitimized Romania in the eyes of the West. Though the acceptance of this information was slow to take effect after Carter lost re-election. An article published in The American Spectator in 1988 wrote of Pasepa, His passage from east to west was a historic event, for so carefully had he prepared, and so thorough was his knowledge of the structure, the methods, the objectives, and the operations of Ceausescu's secret service, that within three years the entire organization had been eliminated. Not a single top official was left. Not a single major operation was still running. Ceausescu had a nervous breakdown and gave orders for Pasepa's assassination. At least two squads of murderers have come to the United States to try to find him. And just recently, one of Pasepa's former agents, a man who had performed minor miracles in stealing Western technology in Europe at Romanian behest, spent several months on the East Coast trying to track down the general. They did not succeed. The first death threats came in September, shortly after his defection, as Nikolai Ceausescu had placed a $2 million bounty on the head of his former friend. Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat and Libyan dictator Muammar al-Gaddafi each added a further $1 million to Pasepa's bounty. After a few months of no results, Ceausescu re-enlisted Carlos the Jackal in what the security called Operation 363. Someone called Juicy J and the 3-6 Mafia. You're about to get uh, bumped off by the 3-6-3 Mafia. Ooh, ooh, I'm Carlos the Jackal. I got the same voice as Mr. Bones. <laughs> I'm Mr. Bones. I'm Mr. Squid. I'm sorry, when I said Mr. Bones, I'm in Mr. Squid. I'm Carlos the Jackal. Okay. The Jackal was given over 80 pounds of plastic explosives, five Soviet fragmentary grenades, seven machine guns, eight Soviet pistols, one Walther PP pistol, and a cache of small... PP pistol. Squirt, squirt. <laughs> Smells like ammonia. <laughs> and a cache of small caliber ammunition. He dispatched headhunters to the United States, but, after months of searching, could not find Pasepa. To the United States, but? <sighs> Texas? I'm just kidding. <laughs> the butt of the United States is Texas? No, just because, like, like, it's the lowest... I guess Florida's the lowest point, but... Yeah, but that's the penis. Yeah, so... so and Louisiana's the, the balls, because they're sweaty and jungly, and they're also, like, they hang 
just outside of the penis. Texas would be the butt. Yeah, I guess. I guess it would be the butt. Unless it's the knees. Texas is is the knees. No. Well, because, like, there's no, like, legs beneath, so I imagine that America is, like, scrunched up in order to get the dick out front. If Louisiana was the balls... Yeah. Why would... Why would... Why would the knees be right next to the balls? Well, because the whole southeast is, like, the, the gooch stretch. Yeah. And then, like... It's a misshapen man. Then I feel like Louisiana wouldn't be the balls. Not Louisiana, it's the balls. Louisiana's right next to the Mississippi. So the Mississippi is the balls. Or is or is Florida's panhandle the balls? Because then they're receded. The panhandle is the balls. And then the rest of the South is the gooch and Texas is the butthole. Right. Let's continue. I think truth or consequences, New Mexico is the butthole. Okay, that's fine. Because Texas, Fun. Is a, I'm not calling Texas a butt, I'm just saying it's just because it, it's the lowest point besides Florida. Yeah. And, and it's in the middle. I think it's the knees. Texas, the knees of America. Uh, Truth or Consequences, New Mexico was originally called something else entirely, but in the 50s there was a game show called Truth or Consequences, and they gave out like $2,000 or something like that to the first town that was like, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. if you permanently name yourselves Truth or Consequences, we'll give you like $40 and a coupon to buy Kellogg's cereal. And like the 40 people in that town were like, yeah, I want that golden gram. Well, that's post. Who cares? Uh, <laughs> want that so they changed it to Truth or Consequences, which is like a pretty dope-ass fucking name. It's, a, it's like, that should have been the name... In the Wild West. Truth or consequences. Hell yeah. Yeah, but imagine having to write that on, like, the post script or whatever. Yeah. I think it would be cool. Every time you write it. Yeah, damn right I live in truth or consequences. Unable to find Pasepa. Uh, on February 21st, 1980, Carlos the Jackal reappropriated his gifted arsenal toward another of Ceausescu's targets, Radio Free Europe's headquarters in Munich, which was broadcasting news of Pasepa's defection. Five Romanian diplomats, employed at their embassy in West Germany, were charged with collusion and deported back to Romania. Pasepa continues to live in the United States, in an unknown location, under a new identity. And for all you know, he is your next-door neighbor. Probably isn't, but what if he is? Posepa has published articles in various magazines in addition to a few books. His first, 1986's Red Horizons, Chronicles of a Communist Spy Chief, shed light on Ceausescu's many international crimes, such as industrial espionage, contract killings, spying on Americans, and dramatic attempts to persuade the Western public of his eminence. In in, in 2007, Posepa published Programmed to Kill, Lee Harvey Oswald, the Soviet KGB, and the Kennedy assassination, arguing that Lee Harvey Oswald was was recruited as a KGB agent when Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev desired to assassinate President John F. Kennedy during the latter's first years in office. Then, however, after Khrushchev and Kennedy made peace in the Cuban Missile Crisis, Khrushchev had a change of heart, but he couldn't stop Lee Harvey Oswald, and mob-indebted Jack Ruby was contracted to kill Oswald in order to cover up the whole ordeal. Probably not. 
<laughs> but if you write a book about it and you sell the book and you make money, who gives a shit? As the light of Ceausescu's dabblings into American affairs came to light in the years following Pasepa's defection, Western banks began demanding that Ceausescu repay his loans. <laughs> surprise, surprise, corporations don't like to be played for fools. So in order to pay off Romania's debts, Ceausescu introduced new economic limitations on his own people, calling them austerity measures. Food rations were diminished, energy allowance was halved, and wages were slashed. Come on down to Romania, we're slashing wages. 50%, 80%, 99% off. Ceausescu said these cutbacks were good for the people because it brought society back to true communism. True communism being poverty, pain, and punishment. Facts. Remember when uh, I mentioned that uh, Romanian economy not good? Yeah. Romanian economy not good. We'll get to that later, though. No good. No good, Rose. No good. In September 1983, uh, workers from the seven mines of Matamuras went on strike protesting the unfair and impersonal austerity measures, though they were quickly suppressed by the Securitate. In response, local citizens began self-publishing pamphlets denouncing the new economic policies and calling for action. This form of publication, called Samizdat, was a practice imported from Soviet Russia. Samizdat meaning self-publishing. Wherein, to avoid the censors, dissidents produced their own documents by hand and delivered them through underground networks to be reproduced by hand by others before being disseminated further. Anyone caught in the act of Samizdat was severely punished and typically deported to the gulags. Underground author Vladimir Bukovsky summarized Samizdat as I write it myself, edit it myself, censor it myself, publish it myself, distribute it myself, and spend time in prison for it Myself. Um, doesn't sound like a nice deal. No, but that's pretty baller ass. As Samizdat practices began to take root in and around major, la major labor centers, Minister of the Interior, George Homostian, ordered all citizens to surrender their typewriters to the local police, and anyone caught with a typewriter thereafter would face incarceration. Still, Samizdat continued, and dissidents spread underground. That's crazy because, you know, they might, have, they might not have typewriters, but there's this thing called a pen and paper. Oh, yeah. You can take away our typewriters, but you can't take away our hands. Yeah, but they did. <laughs> Just kidding. What, what is this, the Congo? I'm surprised they did. <laughs> we'll get into the Congo in a later series. Uh, in November 1984, the heavy machinery plant and the refrigeration plant in Cluj-Napoca, and the glass factory in Turda to the southwest began a massive collaborative strike protesting the reductions of food rations and wages. The party officials promised to meet their demands, the same as Ceausescu did at Jew Valley, but soon after the laborers returned to work, the Securitate arrested the strike leaders, tortured them, and threw them into prison. Unrest continued to boil in secret, and on February 16, 1987, a thousand employees of the Nicolina Rolling Stocks factory in Jassy went on strike, protesting further wage cuts. Party officials promised to amend this, and in order to restore wages to what they had been, 150 of the strikers were fired from the factory. 
The remaining workers had their wages restored, yes, but at the cost of now having to do more work. Again, anyone in the American uh, workforce right now, does that sound familiar? They get rid of employees, but still demand the same amount of production. So, like, you're not only not getting raises for cost of living, but now you're also doing the work of more than one person. Probably, like, you know, they usually make sure every one person is doing three persons' jobs for the pay of two-thirds of one person. And then, you know, it's funny because, like you said, it's not like wages have gone up, even though cost of living has gone way, way up. And, And then now people are like... How dare these people want a living wage, blah, 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 burger flippers, $15 an hour. And it's like, well, Susan, you should be making far more than you're making at your job, too. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah, they're making $15 an hour. That seems ridiculous to you. Well, you're only making, like, $28 an hour when you should be making, like, $36 an hour. So you should be pretty pissed off. Yeah, just because some people are doing worse than you doesn't mean you're not doing bad. Exactly. Oh, uh, Susan, did you know uh, in the past someone with your job uh, would have a pool and a boat and a second house? Yeah. I don't have a pool or a boat or a second house. Susan, that's what I'm talking about. You're being duped. We're all being duped. You know who's not duped? The dupers. The dupers. You know what the dupers have? All the money. Check it out. You you know, if you could see their secret offshore accounts and even the ones they have onshore, they got more money than... If you put all that money in a room with them, they would be like, what is all this? This wall, is this a hedge maze? Oh my God! This is my. Is this my money? Did you get who? Who put who? Is it a prank? Someone brought all my money, put it in a room. I don't want to see any matches. <laughs> uh, every day's my birthday. On November tenth, well into the cold season, the city of Brasov was given another energy reduction, and home heating was limited to one hour a day. This came in conjuncture with food shortages and a second month of wage cuts, which saw salaries reduced by another 15%, all because the city hadn't met its production targets, which was completely owed to the fact that the state had not commissioned enough orders. That's, that is literally like if you worked for Boeing and your site manager said you could get a pizza party at the end of the month if you made 10 airplane engines. But Boeing itself only asks that you make six. And then your manager makes you eat your own feces for not making four extra engines to put in the garbage. That's so fucking bullshit. Uh, I said we get pizza. If you made ten, you only only made six. We only contracted for six. But you didn't make ten. We made all of the ones we were contracted for. But you didn't make ten. So instead uh, instead of having a pizza party, you know what? I'm going to make you eat your own poop. Yeah. Naturally, the working class of Brasov was pretty pissed. But no matter, the elections were in five days. They would just vote for new representatives who will right these wrongs and help the people. Because democracy works. Doesn't it? No. Never. No, 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 Leah. Because democracy works. Democracy. I, you know, it's funny, Democracy, as an American, Leah. I'm, I'm told to say yes, but as an American, I'm also going to say no. Leah, but it works. Look at all the senators we have. Yeah. And the representatives, and, and how sh- they represent us. Yeah, right. And how they represent us, Leah. And the, the companies that pay them on the sly and give them donations that 
you know, they go towards the campaign, but also just to their pockets. Though that's that's just because they they that's just because that's just because I can't even come up with a fake Republican argument. Do you remember that time that the Doesn't governor of fucking sense. New Jersey shut down a beach so he could sit on it with his oh, yeah. family? No. Come November fifteenth, nineteen eighty-seven, when several thousand workers from the Steagle Rosu machine plant assembled to vote, when all of a sudden they're informed that they will not be voting, and instead they need to get back to work. Huh? Hey, we're all here to vote. So national duty, civic right. Oh, yeah. Actually, we're, we as a group, and by we I mean you guys aren't voting today. Because you need to go make refrigerators and tractors. Sounds like some shit we'll pull in like a couple, couple years. Couple of years. 2024? 20, yeah. <laughs> You're, you can't have water or go to the bathroom or any of that garbage ass. Let me tell you, the people in Stigul Rosu were not having it. What began as an assemblage of would-be voters turned into an assemblage of rioters. Instead of marching to the electoral center, they marched into the city, joined along the way by thousands of workers from the local tractor factory, and thousands more from the surrounding neighborhoods, chanting as they went, Down with the dictatorship! Down with the dictatorship! And singing, Destiapete Romaine! which is like the song of the 1848 revolution. As the mob neared the local party headquarters, the apparatchiks, the, the bureaucrats, fled out the back door, ceding the building to the protesters, who smashed through the windows, dismantled the gates, tore the signs and banners from the facade, and ransacked the interior, destroying machines like typewriters and computers, and throwing file cabinets and furniture into the streets, where they were collected into piles and lit ablaze, an impromptu communist bonfire, an Eastern Bloc block party. <laughs> the People's Council building across the road met a similar fate, but not to as great a degree, as military vehicles soon arrived. Loaded with armed soldiers who descended upon the crowds, swinging batons and slashing bayonets, firing their rifles into the air and over the heads of the fleeing mob. Hundreds were arrested, and hundreds more were pulled from their homes later that night, imprisoned on the assumption that they had participated in the Brazov riots. The state only acknowledged the unrest two weeks later, when the propaganda machine was ready to speak the real truth. Give me that choo-choo. They said that the capitalist instigators who engaged in acts that are alien to our society had all been arrested, and that wages were rightfully restored to the city's workers. Sixty of the protesters were held accountable for the whole of the mob, Paths of Glory style, if you've ever seen like Stanley Kubrick's one good film. Uh, fight me. Fight me on that. Uh, and they were convicted of hooliganism and sentenced to four years in prison. The easy explanation for the sudden growth of the riots would be that Nikolai Ceausescu was an incompetent leader, but it's the nature of this kind of sentence that's keeping me from honoring the name of the podcast and keeping a long story short, because it's really not that simple. In economic terms, it comes to... It comes down to Ceausescu's inability to admit ignorance and his refusal to accept the advice of informed experts. 
Back in 1973, after U.S. President Richard M. Nixon and the other Western leaders defended Israel from a Middle Eastern coalition of aggressors, those same Middle Eastern neighbors united their natural resource production under the OPEC banner, short for the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, and they impressed an oil embargo upon the West. Almost overnight, oil prices quadrupled in the United States and other countries, and gasoline had to be rationed for six months, as oil had to be scrounged from all other possible sources. Now we talk about Ploesti. Recognizing a new and desperate market for oil, Nicolae Ceausescu demanded that Romania reappropriate its efforts toward expanding their oil refineries. He wanted to make Romania the number one exporter of oil in Europe and in all the world. And then he could sell oil for high profit. And then he could send aid to third world nations in order to entrench Romania's presence. And then, like every other global power in history, he could then leverage his economic pyramid for international influence and transform Romania into the global power that his predecessors were never able to realize. And I'm all for wild ambition and making dream boards, but having grand visions of an ideal future, because... Yeah, I have, I've been there for myself. I've dreamed of an ideal future and complained about all the things that would make it possible, but... You complained? That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. <laughs> but Nikolai Ceausescu did not have a plan, really. He didn't have a plan, and most importantly, he did not have the money to get started. Romania had no capital to invest in such a massive expansion of oil refineries. So Ceausescu did what any entrepreneur does. He went to the bank. More specifically, he went to Western banks, and he borrowed over $13 billion in 1973 money, one-third of the country's then-gross domestic product, which is about $75 billion today. This country wouldn't have been in so much debt if he hadn't have built a stupid house. Oh yeah, he's just choosing all these different ways to get into debt all at the same time and have no way to... I'll get to it. Ceausescu believed that when the time came to repay the loans, he'd have enough profits from newly refined oil that he could pay back the banks no problem. But he was putting the cart before the horse, because he already initiated the first of his social cutbacks, limiting welfare, which decreased the productivity of Romanian labor, which ultimately delayed the completion of those oil refinery expansions by a matter of years, only getting worse because of... For one, the 1977 earthquake, which set things back a while, but also the post-earthquake opulence obsession that drove Ceausescu to level a great swath of Bucharest and build himself a Parisian boulevard and a massive unwieldy unnecessary palace. By the time the oil refineries were finally completed, ten years later, OPEC's oil embargo was in the past. America had fostered trade relations with other oil-producing countries, and Reagan's vast deregulation efforts all contributed toward record low oil prices worldwide, which meant not capitalizing on oil exports, which meant not making back more profit than there had been cost on the investment, which meant not being able to repay the Western banks. And after the earthquake, to his credit, Ceausescu did try to work around his delays by purchasing oil from the Shah of Iran and then exporting it to the West as if it were his own. But when the Shah was overthrown by Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979, that little sneak deal dissolved overnight. To account for dwindling GDP in order to pay back the Western banks, Ceausescu redirected a vast portion of domestic production toward international exports, meaning much of Romania's agricultural and industrial produce intended for the Romanian household was now being sold to other countries. You should do rap, God. <laughs> <laughs> as domestic shortages worsened, so did quality of labor, as sick and famished people have a harder time churning butter than healthy, strong people. 
This meant that production designated for export and for country alike diminished. And which do you think was pilfered from to account for the difference? Mm -hmm. Production for export or production for country? Well, one makes money, the other doesn't. That's right, more domestic produce was reappropriated for export. Eventually, food shortages became food rationing. Half a loaf of bread a day, three and a half ounces of butter, and five eggs per person per month. And 12 pounds of meat per year, given out on three holidays, of which there were four. May Day, National Day in August, New Year's, and Ceausescu's birthday on January 26th. And yes, Christmas was illegal. What? Celebrated the birth of the baby Jesus, not the birth of the baby Nikolai Ceausescu. That is what January 26th was for. Oh my god. And energy rationing soon became blackouts. Yay! Quality of living plummeted. And keep in mind that many families are struggling extra hard because they have to care for the extraneous children that they were coerced into having. Oh yeah, forgot about those. By 1980, oh yeah, a lot of people did. <laughs> By 1981, Romanian living standards were among Europe's lowest, second only to Albania. Albanians, they steal time and they trap you in boxes. That's why you brought Albanians up. I read it somewhere. I read it in a dream. Oh, okay. And examples of discontent became more frequent, such as in the throwing of rocks at Ceausescu's helicopter while it attempted to land in Brazov that October. A flying metal bird, get out of here. I am your I am your president. Oh Can I get more rocks? When urban gas lines were shut off, city dwellers had to resort to butane canisters and charcoal stoves in order to cook food and to heat their homes. Public buses too had their diesel engines swapped out for methane propulsion systems, which quickly earned the nickname of bombs. Because this, honestly, they're they were bombs on wheels hey honey i have to uh have to go out to work you know cars in the shop so i gotta take the bomb it, every it, what if here's a here's uh, speed 1992 the perfect action movie but the bus that's out of control and has a bomb on board is actually every bus and it's just a normal average everyday day in the life of a Romanian. Scary. Scary. Taxis too were overhauled to run on methanol and a curfew instituted on weekends meant public transportation ended in the late afternoon. The party propaganda machine promoted food shortages as rational eating saying it was a, a means to reduce obesity as if that was ever a problem. Hey, are Romanians fat? No. Well, what if we eat, you know, with a rational sense? Let's take it as a logical, like, try to be uh, very um, deliberate about how we eat. We are already deliberate. We're poor and we don't have money. What if we were more deliberate? We, what if we didn't eat? Oh, okay, I see. The machine also published cutesy little guidelines and cookbooks on how to eat nutritiously while reducing caloric intake by 25%. And despite higher crop yields year after year, Romanians consistently had less and less to eat, only being given that, would, that which was deemed unfit for export. As Eugen Tomiuk, who was a teacher in Brazov in the late 80s, later wrote, the state's creed might as well have been, 
Long live communist Romania, and to hell with its people. Electricity was diverted to industrial centers as rationing limited the overall production of generators and individual homes were allotted a maximum of 20 kilowatt hours per month. And can uh, I forgot to mention, uh, the uh, using the charcoal stoves and the kerosene in the houses as ways to cook food and warm the house, that led to a lot of fires. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. You can imagine people getting a lot of, you know, cancer later on, too. Oh, yeah. Breathing all those fumes, yeah. 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 Electricity was diverted to industrial centers as rationing limited the overall production of generators, and individual homes were allotted a maximum of 20 kilowatt hours per month, which, with modern appliances, is enough to do four loads of laundry a month, or run a refrigerator for one and a half weeks. Back then, that was probably enough to have a single light bulb lit. Any energy consumption over 20 kilowatt hours a month was taxed at twice its worth. Four out of five streetlights were shut off, leaving about one per block, while television broadcasts were reduced to a single channel airing for only two hours a day. The quality of living got so bad that in October 1984, an officer in charge of a countryside-based military unit planned to launch a coup d'etat at the end of the month. The only reason it never came about was because his military unit was reassigned to the fields to help with the harvesting of corn. And Ceausescu was none the wiser. With all these cutbacks, Ceausescu was, eventually, able to repay all of his loans to the Western banks by the end of the summer in 1989, which was both poignant and unfortunate timing, as it was mere months before he was overthrown. Glad we did all those cutbacks. Mm. Who cares if everyone starved? Yeah. Hey, but you know what? He repaid his loans. Just in time to be overthrown. <laughs> Fucking idiot. Whew. I mean, nothing. Don't worry, guys. I'm gonna, I'm gonna repay all the loans there. Last payments are mailed off. You know, we're gonna be good. It has been, hey, why are all you frowning? <laughs> Why are you guys holding uh, guns and rocks? I miss something. Oh, you guys are upset about the uh, the cold houses and the empty stomachs. But guys, I repaid the loans. <laughs> yeah, we got lemons. <laughs> we got a uh, got a lot of, got a got a lot of lemons. Send a couple guys out to the field to harvest some lemons. These ones are not for export. <clears throat> They're for me. So yeah, we're coming up on that overthrow. You ready so to talk about that? I'm right now. Stoked. You ready to talk about it right now? Right now. Because that'll do it for this episode of Ceausescu's Downfall, <laughs> our series on 20th century <laughs> Romania. We're breaking this section into two because it's kind of long. Like every section thus far, it's got two parts. So a great upheaval part two will be the next episode, but. As for now, this is Chris. And this is Leah. With long story short, signing off. Oh, Tyra's here. You, you showed, oh, talking about coincidental timing with the loans and the... The loans and the...
just how, just how Ceausescu paid off the loans and time to be overthrown. But you all know about that. Wait. 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 Fuck have I been? Wait, hold on. Nigga, who the fuck are you? Worry about what I spend. Bitch, I pay my fucking dues. Dirty. I let her with it quick, man. Never satisfied.